This week on Punch Mountain, follow Tom Cruise and pals through a staycation in Sydney on a mission to make sense of this movie. Rip your face off because we're watching Mission Impossible 2. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake and I am joined, as always, if he chooses to accept it, I'm not talking about this rose, I'm talking about this mission, Mr. David Hada. How are you? I'll take them all. I'll take the mission. I'll take the rose. I'll take the service merchandise gift certificate. I'm winning this one today. What if I told you this rose David carried with it a deadly virus? <gasps> Sean Ambrose, is that you? You bastard. But what if I told you we already had a cure? Yay! So what are we doing this movie for? Then? I don't know. I don't know what the fuck, it is. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck we're doing here. It's, uh, it's weird. Speaking of movies, David, yes, we're talking about Mission Impossible 2, which I have to say <laughs> it was improbable that we were going to talk about this. I did not expect us to cover this movie. Because this was a Twitter poll winner. So if you could give a little background as to how we got here, talking about our third John Woo movie in episode 34. Yeah, that's right. This is our third movie uh, that was directed by director John Woo. I mean, it makes sense directed by a director. When this episode comes out, I think the new Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning uh, will already be in theaters uh, or just about. I don't remember. And I was like, you know what? We should do a Mission Impossible movie. Now, for some reason, there's some franchises I kind of want to do in order or in some sort of order. Now, I don't feel the need to start with Mission Impossible 1 because I was like, that feels to me more like a thriller than an action movie. So I was like, all right, well, maybe we'll start with Mission Impossible 5. That was the first Christopher McQuarrie directed movie and he's he's directed the last three and he's going to do... Uh, part Dead Reckoning Part 2, I guess, whenever that comes out. Well, maybe we'll start with the fourth one, because that one, you know, directed by Brad Bird, but that one, I feel like, was kind of the the first template movie for this current run of Mission Impossible movies, the most recent batch of them. And I was like, well, maybe we should start with three. You could say that's sort of like a, the pregame for the current. And I was like, well, two, <laughs> it was directed by John Woo, which <laughs> it's, it's an oddity. Ah, fuck it, I can't decide. Let's let our listeners decide. And so we set up a Twitter poll. And I got to say, I stuck two on there and I was like man I, I kind of hope they don't pick two just because we've done two John Woo movies already and sure enough you know you made a deal with the devil I mean David you invite the devil in your house you shouldn't be surprised when he does something devilish like eat all your delicious cookies or something like that no those cookies were from my mama I know they were devil's food cookies too I mean by name alone he had every right to them but yeah and so now we're doing Mission Impossible 2 this movie definitely it feels like what it is it feels like a 2000s movie directed by john woo and starring year 2000 tom cruise so for th for those reasons and more i'll come out and say it right now at the top of the show i i i hated this movie when i first watched it for the for this show then before i started my second viewing i read the imdb i read the wikipedia and before the second viewing i found out this was originally as long as three and a half hours john woo wanted this to be some epic grand scale action movie he turns in a three and a half hour cut. This thing gets 90 minutes taken out of it. So now I'm rooting for this movie. Now, the second time I watch it, I'm a lot more interested in what's not there. And I'm going to reference this a lot throughout this episode, comparing it to a movie to, or to a version that does not exist. I apologize, but I find that so much more fascinating than the end product. Wait, so did you find the script for the three and a half hour version or something? I did not, but just trying to piece together from scenes in the movie, well, this doesn't work, and trying to reverse engineer what would have made it work. I'm interested in that because I cannot imagine this movie being an hour longer. But it's funny, so one of our listeners, Dustin, sent me a message uh, when he voted in the Twitter poll, and he said, I voted for Mission Impossible 2, 
because I hated it when I was young, but watched it a few years ago and loved how insane it was. And I think you guys have a good discussion about it. I mean, I kind of feel like that's maybe why people voted for it. Like, well, you know, what do you want to give a bear bear food or do you want to give a bear cocaine? Uh, and I think people are cocaine bearing <laughs> us right now. Yeah, this movie, it really is like it's this time capsule for the year 2000. It, it's kind of a, this new metal Mission Impossible. Because the, the first theme song was like the Mission Impossible TV show theme, kind of like remixed by like Bono and the Edge. Or no way, not Bono and the Edge. The other two guys on YouTube, somebody. And this one, I guess we got to get Limb Biscuit to do it, which is just a fucking crime. But David, Mission Impossible 2 is, is interesting because, you know, in the 90s, making feature-length adaptations of old TV shows was kind of like a, in style, right? Like The Fugitive, uh, Adam's Family, all that stuff, you know, Brady Bunch. I think that, you know, that was all in the 90s. And so when Tom Cruise made Mission Impossible with De Palma, I was like, okay, you know, that was a lot of fun. Uh, some iconic moments there with the uh, hanging on the, the wire, the trapeze wire thing in the, the white computer room. But Tom Cruise is not a franchise guy. Like, he had not made a sequel. I mean, actually, I think, was it Color of Money? It was, like, sort of, like, technically or, like, sort of maybe a sequel unofficially to The Hustler? That is right, yeah. Yeah, with one of the best character names of all time, Minnesota Fats. <laughs> uh, that's in The Hustler, not in Color of Money. Whatever, who cares? But, yeah, he was like, oh, shit, he's making a sequel. And he hard pivoted to action. The fact that he got, like, John Woo, uh, it is crazy. But even the villain in this movie... Is played by Doug Ray Scott. When you think of Doug Ray Scott, does anything come to mind, David? Well, actually, Mac, I think of the role he didn't get because he famously was supposed to initially be Wolverine in the 2000 series X-Men movies, but he had to back out because of a scheduling conflict with this movie, with Mission Impossible 2. So he'll always be the guy who was not Wolverine. David, I, I think of the same thing. He's the man who would be Wolverine. Now, I always heard that it was because he got injured in this movie and he couldn't be Wolverine. But it turns out, yeah, I, I, I looked into it and it was a scheduling conflict. He did get injured, but it wasn't that he was like incapable of like pretending he has claws. <laughs> meow, meow, meow. That injury pushed his rap data Mission Impossible 2 even further out. And at some point they're like, fine, fucking Hugh Jackman. So Mission Impossible 2 brought us uh, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Hugh Jackman. I mean, that guy. He owns that character. He's so good at it. He does. But I feel doubly bad for Doug Ray Scott because he never got anything else. He never got like a supplementary sort of reward. He put all of his chips on the middle on Mission Impossible 2 and it came up no good for him. Yeah, but ever watching this movie, I don't know if I, no offense to Doug Ray Scott, I don't necessarily feel like we were robbed of his uh, his filmography. Did Doug Ray Scott want to, want to be still working out here 23 years later to do Deadpool 3 with Ryan Reynolds? I don't know. That'd be really funny to have Doug Ray Scott be one of these like multiverse movies. I wanted him to be the other Logan in Logan, that one where they had him playing against himself. I was like, that should have been Doug Ray Scott. That would have been the best. Uh, yeah, that would have been weird. Uh, I think just like me, you, and like one other guy, and, the, and I do mean guy, in the theater would <laughs> <laughs> like turned at each other. It's like, that's Doug Ray Scott. Actually, I don't know if I would recognize Doug Ray Scott if he delivered my mail. David, before we go any farther, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Mission Impossible 2 on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions, so we'll do some quickly provided answers. David, what happened to the girl in Mission Impossible 2? Oh my God, you didn't hear? She got blowed up. It was so graphic, they had to cut it out of the movie, along with an hour and a half of other stuff. Mac, did Tom Cruise climb in Mission Impossible 2? No, David. As we know, Tom Cruise does like to do his own stunts. However, as we also know, Tom Cruise can fly. Was Mission Impossible 2 a success? Oh, it wasn't a success. Ask Limp Biscuit, Metallica, Rob Zombie, Butthole Surfers. 
the pimps. Foo Fighters. This is just half of the soundtrack for Mission Impossible 2, Mac. Damn, now I know why you want to hate me. Mac, is Mission Impossible 7 in two parts? No, but Mission Impossible 2 is in seven parts. And we'll be talking about parts one through three tonight. David, before we watch the story of an alpha male faced with the impossible mission of having empathy for a woman, what? Let's check in with two beta bros faced with the impossible mission of not making each other smile. Aw, it's a friendship check-in. Our friendship, David, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well, Mac. I'm enjoying a bit of a vacation right about now. You've heard of quite quitting, have you? Have you not? Is that's a that's a hot term that was used post pandemic? Yes, it's it's the idea where uh, you don't really like your job, but you'll go back to it anyway and kind of just half ass it. You sort of silently quit your way out the door. Yeah, exactly. You you half ass it until they fire you. I guess it's like oh, you quit a long time ago. It's kind of like dying on the inside. Oh, very much so. I'd say that's accurate. Well, right now I'm enjoying a bit of a quiet vacation because I uh, accepted a new role within the company, but it does not start until next week. So my current supervisor decided there's no real reason to give you projects. Would you mind just not causing a disturbance for the next week? So I'm just uh, kicking back. I'm halfway through season one of Russian Doll, finally catching up on that. I finished a book this week. Uh, I'm really enjoying just collecting money from somebody else. Oh, did you say Russian Doll season one? Uh, yes, that's right. I, I've I put it off for so long, and I was just like, you know what? I'm sitting here. Let me just fucking start it. Ah, super fun show. And I, yeah, extra props for the way Natasha Leone says cockroach. I <laughs> love it all. Yeah, very much so. That's going to be me, Mac. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's been a real weird week, and I'm, I think I'll talk about it at the end of the show, if that's okay with you. I will say, but because of this weird week, it's part of the reason why people may have noticed like a gap in our release schedule. And it's also the reason, David, right before we, you know, we're going to start talking about the movie here in a second. I watched this movie, I feel like three weeks ago. And I, we were talking up top, I forgot to say whether or not I liked it. And yeah, I found myself thinking this movie was a lot of fun after watching it. However, it has been now three weeks. And the thing that kind of bothered me about the movie is now lingered and bothers me more. So, oh no. <laughs> if we had recorded this like right after the movie, I would have been like, hell yeah. Bam, 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 bam. But now I'm like, oh, geez, I don't know. Because the other problem is, is I thought about the plot a little. I was like, wait, that doesn't make a fucking sense at all. So you know what? I'm going to honor my original viewing experience, and I'm not going to nitpick this plot that doesn't necessarily hold up. But I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, so, I mean, is there anything stopping us from just getting on in there, David? Matt, grab your collection of face masks. We're going in. This movie came out a long time ago. In case someone is not as familiar with Mission Impossible 2 or they've never seen it, could you level set, maybe give the back of the box description? Affirmative, I'll accept that mission. How do you prevent terrorists from unleashing mayhem on the entire world? This is a job for IMF agent Ethan Hunt. The world's greatest spy returns in the movie event of the year, MI2. Top action director John Woo brings his own brand of excitement to the mission that finds Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, partnering up with the beautiful Nia Hall, Tandy Newton, to stop renegade agent Sean Ambrose, Dugray Scott, from releasing a new kind of terror on an unsuspecting world. But before the mission is complete, they'll traverse the globe and have to choose between everything they love and everything they believe in. Wait, what? 2000. <laughs> I've fu we'll, hold on, we're, we're about to talk about it. In the year 2123 minutes, directed by John Woo, rated PG-13, Mac, did the person who wrote this even watch the movie? Choose between everything they love and everything they believe in. Uh, my first reaction to that was, fuck you. Uh, that's so stupid. <laughs> also, real quick, Dugray? Is that how you say his name? Okay, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. 
Dugre is buried in my head, and sometimes when I'm saying his name, I'll retrieve it. I could go either way. If someone wants to correct me, if, or if you do hear Dugre come out throughout the show, I apologize in advance. No, I mean, he is Australian, right? He's Scottish. Oh, shit. So it might be Dugre. Dugre. Yeah, I guess. I guess if you're trying to say Dugre in like a, a comical Scottish accent, it might come out as Dugre. Dugre, did you let the digs it let's knit? That's going to be one of those robot robot cop things, so I apologize in advance. Oh, no no problem at all. Uh, you're referring to the time that we did a Master Pancake show of RoboCop, and I kept calling him Robot Cop. And I was instructed by John Erler. It's like, hey, when we come on stage and do like our skit, call me RoboCop, not Robot Cop. And I said, okay. And then my brain could not switch over. <laughs> so I was like, Robot Cop, Robot Cop, Robot Cop, Robot Cop. And I was like, I'll say it right this time, Robot Cop. I was like, no, I'm so sorry. I swear to God, I'm not fucking with you. My brain is just bad. <laughs> uh, eagle-eared listeners. Do, do eagles have good ears? I think so. They don't bump into trees. You can't even see their ears. I'm going to say bad-eared listeners. Does that sound better? It doesn't sound better, but I think it is better. Uh, is this the show? We're just going to be this <laughs> self-devouring for the next? Let's take more two-week breaks. <laughs> yeah. Punch Mountain, episode 34, the home of not second guesses, mind you, 15 guesses. Bad-eared listeners might have heard something that kind of, you know, tips the hand of this movie. So it says, uh, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, the beautiful Nia Hall, Tandy Newton, and renegade agent Sean Ambrose, do great, Scott. Uh, David, it's weird that of those three characters, only one had to get their physical attractiveness commented on. That was, and I, I think it was the, the, the female lead. Is that correct? Look, there's no way my Ethan Hunt is going to chase down some Uggamug. I need to know she's beautiful or else I'm not even renting this movie, Mac. David, I think attractive people help sell movies. So even though this movie is wildly misogynistic, I think we need to leave that beautiful Nia Hall in the description. My punch up would be let's let's compliment these other people, right? So it'd be like, Woo brings own brand of excitement to the mission that finds Rock Stud, Ethan Hunt, partnering with the beautiful Nia Hall, stop renegade agent, and brown bag special Sean Ambrose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oddly centered tooth, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, and Grinch mouthed Sean Ambrose, played by Duke Gray Scott. Yeah, there we go. Does that feel good to comment on people's physical attractiveness? Yeah, everyone loves it. Everyone loves it. Okay, how's this movie start, David? Mag, this movie starts in Sydney, Australia, with a rockin' soundtrack and a crazy doctor. Named Nikorovich, played by Rade Serbejizio. Hey, he's the guy that always plays Russians in everything. Yeah, that's right. Nikorovich is going to inject himself with the deadly virus Chimera and enlist the help of his friend Dimitri to accompany him to the CDC in Atlanta. But Dimitri is actually Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise. But wait, Ethan Hunt is actually rogue IMF agent Sean Ambrose, played by almost Wolverine Dugray Scott. Sean steals what he thinks is the virus Chimera, but actually steals its antidote, Belafron. <sighs> <laughs> Thank you. Time to interrupt the vacation of the actual Ethan Hunt to see if he will accept this impossible mission. David, I groaned because when they're like, oh, do you have the Bella Rofen? I was like, ah, I'm going to have to fucking say that 30 times in the next <laughs> this podcast. Yeah, David, so we get some voiceover here as this Dr. Nurkovich. Uh, is that how you say his name? Nekorvich? Nekorvich. Yeah, Dr. Russia. He's like, <laughs> you know, he's like narrating like a note to his friend Dimitri. And then guess who shows up on the plane? It's Dimitri, but it's Ethan Hunt. And then, so you're like, okay, Ethan Hunt, right? Dimitri's maybe his code name or he's undercover. He's like, why are you calling me Dimitri? I'm not Dimitri. I'm Ethan Hunt. And I was like, whoa, shit. But then he rips off his face later and is like, oh, shit, he's not Ethan Hunt. It's this other guy, Shawnee Ambrose, who we, we just, you know, they were meeting for the first time. But even the vibe when the Tom Cruise shaped body, 
you know, it's it's Tom Cruise playing another person, playing another person, whatever. But when he sits down, his vibes are just like so wrong. I was like, man, he really is wants to fuck this Russian doctor. I don't know, man. The the energy is just like way off. That's saying something because this is Tom Cruise. That that is saying something. There was something very off about his energy. I think that was supposed to be an indication that it's not Tom Cruise. Like there was almost something human about this version, the Tom Cruise shaped person. You're like, oh, something's wrong. Mac, let me ask you something. Is this all, well, how do I ask this? Because, okay, going into this movie, I know it's a Mission Impossible movie. I remember the first Mission Impossible movie, which was notoriously confusing. So I already know going into this movie, okay, it might be a little confusing. There might be some switches and some double crosses. But starting this movie with the doctor injecting himself, enlisting the help of Dimitri. Dimitri's not Dimitri. It's somebody else. He wants what the doctor has. Is this effectively confusing or is this just confusing? This is confusing. I mean, the fact that he injected himself with the virus right off the bat with this movie, you're like, why? Why do that? Like, it's just a, it's like such a big, don't do that, like to start a movie off with. (laughs) I actually did not find the first Mission Impossible movie confusing. And I think it's because I did not try to solve it. When the movie would Mm -hmm. be like, reveal his tricks to me, I was like, okay, I guess, sure. If that's what it. But Sean Ambrose here, rogue IMF agent, he thinks that he is getting, when he kills his doctor and kills everyone on the fucking plane, he thinks he is getting the virus and the antidote, and I guess he's going to do something with it. We'll find out a little bit later. He does not know that the virus is actually inside uh, this doctor who he kills and then like lets blow up on, on uh, the plane crash, because let's talk about this for a second. So after this uh, rogue IMF agent, Sean Ambrose, and his crew, they like gas everyone on the plane, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think there was gas coming through the oxygen mask because everyone who put the mask on got the sleepies, including the pilots and including the people in the cockpit. Yeah, so after they gas everyone, they kill the Russian scientists and they're like, we're going to evacuate this airplane. And they get off in time and then the airplane crashes. And they think they're getting off with like both the uh, the virus and the end again. But David, the the pilot, who's like, oh, I'm a little sleepy. And he wakes up. He's like, oh, shit. And then he tries to like pull up on the plane. And the plane crashes. And then we don't give it a second thought. This movie already kind of given me like some, I don't know what the word is here. Um, just very, really cynical. Like a real cynical start. The fact that we can murder 200 people as like a kind of a, a cover story for an escape. But we don't spend any time on it. Like It's not like Tom Cruise and his boss, who in this movie is Anthony Hopkins. It's not like they spend any time being like, he killed a whole plane of people. Actually, do they say that? I think they might actually. Uh, when they showed Naya photos of the crash, she's like, who could do something like this? And so they said, Sean Ambrose could, for one. So they do reveal it to someone in the movie. But you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you used the word cynical because before I knew that this was three and a half hours, there was something about this movie that just kind of felt off. It almost felt like it. It's like it didn't really care about entertaining the audience. It was just throwing something out there. Here's some action. Here's some romance. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter if it's not very good. So the fact that you said there was something about the opening of this movie or just the treatment of its victims that comes across as cynical, there's a lot about this movie that kind of strikes that same note for me. Which is funny because even though the script is a little cynical, the directing in this movie is, of course, passionate because it's John Woo, man, and he loves making movies. Uh, one of the thugs, one of Shining Bros' thugs is Wallace. And David, I know that guy. His name is William Mapather, and that's Tom Cruise's real-life cousin. Uh, because Tom Cruise, of course, is named Thomas Cruise Mapather. That's his real name. 
That's right. So did you recognize him off the bat or did you re- see the name and then go, oh, okay, I know who that is? No, I recognized him off the bat because uh, he had like a string where he played a lot of creepy dudes. He's like in Lost. I think he played a creepy dude in like Smoking Aces or something like that. And so I, I was like, who is this guy? And then I was like, whoa, is Tom Cruise's cousin? I remember wondering out loud, like, did Tom Cruise get this guy a job? And then after seeing him in Mission Impossible 2, I want to say the answer is yes. See, because that's very satisfying. I went the other way with it. I did not know who this man was. So seeing him on screen, I was like, who gave this wiener a job? So I was very relieved to find out at the end, someone did give him this job. But David, where is Ethan Hunt? What is the actual Ethan Hunt doing right now? Man, he's somewhere in Utah just hanging out. And I mean, literally, man, he's rock climbing. Um, So he's hanging off the face of a rock. This is where we find him. Some helicopter finds him in the middle of nowhere, shoots a uh, mortar shell at him that has his assignment. So I, I read in the, in the IMDb or the, the trivia for this that Tom Cruise is doing a majority of his own climbing there. He's doing his own stunt work. This is kind of the beginning of that era of Tom Cruise where he wants to be the guy doing the stunts. He wants to be the action star on the big screen. But this feels like a waste because in a movie that has little to no action in the first half of this movie, I sure could go for something to to kickstart this movie, but we're just watching him climb a rock. Yeah, he hadn't quite put it all together. He definitely, at this point, you're right, it would begin his love of like crazy doing his own stunts because I, apparently he was wearing like a very thin wire, but that really is him like jumping from like one rock to the other, which is super impressive. He didn't quite connect it to where like, oh no, this stunt hobby of mine should be part of the story, should be part of the action. It shouldn't just be like, uh, hey, I did the stunt for no fucking reason. It just seemed like, okay, here's a dude who, uh, you know, he, he's got a high pressure job. He wants to blow off some steam. He's, he's climbing rocks. If he, at the beginning of this movie, had also just been, like, building a train set, it would not have changed the story at all in this movie. He could have just, like, you know, putting the little conductor, the little town, he's got a little train set, choo-choo-choo, and then, like, he could have accepted the job. It would have changed nothing. But, David, something I was not aware of the first time I watched this, uh, guess who did the score for this movie, David? Hans Zimmer, the Zims. The Zims! And again, did I look up what he looks like? No. That's my promise to you, the listener. (laughs) I'll never look up what Hans Zimmer looks like. So Ethan's going to get his mission. He's going to accept it. He's going to put on some cool shades that tell him what the mission is, which is like the laziest. I mean, there's- What? What are you talking about, David? It's fucking extreme. <laughs> what am I going to watch some DVD? This is your 2000, bitch. I'm going to put on some sick ass Oakleys and I'm going to get a mission from my glasses. And then when I'm done, because the glasses are going to blow up, what do I do? I throw it right at the camera for no fucking reason. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this movie's stupid. Yeah, so it throws the ca- throws the glasses at the camera. They explode. We get our Mission Impossible opening credits. Finally, yay! It's a Mission Impossible movie, and then we get a flamenco wipe. It's this flamenco dancer traipses across the screen, and that's the wipe to start the new scene. And Mac, I came really close. I almost checked out of this movie. <laughs> if you're looking for me to say it wasn't stupid, I can't. It was very stupid. But in my notes, I just wrote down flamenco and an exclamation mark. Because, David, it's not something you see every day. John Woo, you continue to surprise me. But, Mac, when you hear the flamenco music, that means we're headed to Spain, where Ethan must recruit professional thief Naya Nordoff Hall, played by Tandy Newton. After Ethan scouts her skills with a heist setup, he scouts her not-dying skills with a nearly fatal automobile dance of seduction. Then he scouts her interest in having some sex, and then they have that sex. Ethan is unable to recruit Naya for the mission, but Ethan tries again at the urging of Mission Commander Swanbeck, played by Anthony Hopkins, who informs Ethan of Naya's special set of skills. 
namely a past relationship with Ambrose. David, this sequence oof, might be the worst sequence of the movie because Tom Cruise comes off as a total... Well, I'm going to stop myself right there. David, what do you think about Tom Cruise so far in this role, Ethan Hunt, beginning of the movie? Okay, as we enter Spain and as we see him trying to recruit... One of the best names in the history of movies, Nia Nordoff Hall. <laughs> He's trying to play suave. And in fact, you know, reading the trivia for this movie, the initial contact he has with Nia, he wanted that to be like a boy meets girl from across the room kind of moment. But Mac, I don't buy Tom Cruise as romantic lead. And it's interesting that we're talking about just a moment ago. Tom Cruise hasn't quite figured out what he wants to do as a stunt person, as an action star. I think this is also around the time where he realizes, or at least the audiences realize, we don't like him as a romantic lead. He's not a convincing human being. You know what? I buy him as a romantic lead, but not in this movie. Because the problem with Tom Cruise is he's very intense. If you're very intense, you can't also be like, ah, shucks, I'm a handsome goof, right? When he was pulling off his, like, I'm singing to you in a bar as Maverick, it's like, okay, ha, ha, ha. But then seconds later, when he's like following a woman into the lady's restroom, it's like, hey, you're a fucking criminal now. And so the fact that like Ethan Hunt, uh, hey, what's up? Just like being like in her face, kind of like goofy and playful. He comes across, David, as a fucking psycho. My God, the lengths he goes to to recruit this person. Or you just start the movie here. And if there had not been a Mission Impossible 1, this is a horror movie. This is, yeah, it's one of the, what's the fucking movie? Like, All About Steve, the one with Sandra Bullock where she means well, but she's just stalking Bradley Cooper at every turn. You know, you think about the later Mission Impossible movies where Ethan Hunt has a relationship, but it capitalizes on Tom Cruise's coldness, his sort of sociopathy, because he never really allows himself to commit fully to a relationship. He's always looking over his shoulder for the person who's going to use his partner as leverage. Those movies in comparison to this one where he's just a fun-loving goof, it feels odd, man. Yeah, I buy the Tom Cruise intense smoldering love. I don't know if I buy, this is more like the Tom Cruise jumping on the Oprah couch as a character. But David, it's funny because the first John Woo movie we did was what, Hard Target, right? And that was produced by Sam Raimi. And when we were talking about the movie, we were like, man, a lot of like kind of Raimi feel to this movie. And it's like, oh, I guess they were just kind of peers and you know, mutually admired each other and they kind of rubbed off a lot of shots in this thing and edits and stuff really felt like Sam Raimi to me. Those two dudes are just birds of a feather, I guess. But yeah, so Naya Nordoff Hall, she's in Spain. She's trying to, she's like looking around this bathroom at like a ritzy party and she's trying to like find a secret compartment with a necklace. And then Ethan Hunt shows up and he's like all teeth and smiles and he kind of like fucks up her heist. And at some point he's like, hide. And they got to like hide in the tub together. And like, you know, basically cuddle. The reason they were hiding, some guy entered, I guess a security guard. When security guard left, she kind of like climbs on top of him in a sort of sexual position, David. There's this shot that they do a couple times. I didn't even realize it at first because it's uh, focus is pulled on Tom Cruise. But if you look in the foreground, it is blurry, but we're looking right down the front of Tandy Newton's shirt. So it's a, it's a real big cleavage shot. And it was like, oh, wow, okay, great. And Tom Cruise, of course, he's pinned underneath her. And he's just loving it. I say Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt. He's just loving it. It's just like, God, I can't stand cocky Ethan Hunt Cruise. It's just, this is not working for me. Yes, exactly. And this is, I mean, the shot is straight up cleavage cam. Like the cleavage takes up a good lower third of the screen. But there's moments here where 
it's supposed to be kind of charming, aloof Ethan Hunt, but it just comes across as dumb Tom Cruise where he's sort of being flirtatious with Nia and she elbows him in the gut and he gives a reaction like, oh, like, like he's being playful, but it's like an alien doing a report on what it means to be playful. I, I have a real hang up about Tom Cruise that I realized as I was watching this movie. Like he ruins her robbery. He almost gets her arrested, but then he saves her, but then he almost is like, Gets her, and then he's like, hey, guess what? I purposely fucked up your heist uh, <laughs> to try and uh, get your attention. And she's like, uh, get the fuck away from me. That recruitment didn't work. And so the next day, she's like driving her car fast down like a twisty European road. And then who comes up next to her? An even faster car. It is Ethan Hunt. And he's trying to, again, seduce her, flirt with her, re- recruit her while uh, driving uh, like an insane person. Uh, very fast and very dangerous next to her. What did you think about this scene, David? Okay, so the movie does still need to recruit Naya. It's already had strike one, so we need to ramp it up. I get all of that. So for an action movie, this beats sitting at a diner. It beats, you know, just sitting across from each other at a table, hashing this out. But this feels like manufactured action. This feels like something that is action that did not need to be action at the expense of other parts in this movie that could have been legitimate action. Because it is impressive. It's a technically impressive sequence from a stunt standpoint. But as a moviegoer, I'm I couldn't care less, really. Yeah, why not have some action that involves like, I don't know, the plot? You know, basically Ethan Hunt is running like an errand and they just get into an action set piece for no reason. So yeah, you're right. It is manufactured action. Let's say some dude shows up at your job and he's like, I know everything about you. You'd be like, ugh. And then you're driving home the next day and he's like, hey, it's me again. You'd be like, ugh. <laughs> but the worst part about this, David, is there's a moment here. You know, because they're driving next to each other, and I guess this is like car foreplay, or that's what we're supposed to think. Uh, their cars like slam into each other, and they kind of end up in this like spinning car hug. And David, it was so dumb that I marked out. Man, ah, no, it's extreme for no reason, but because of that that dumb car hug, it just, it just was like it's it was a it was a market moment. It was my first mom. It's just like the dumb dumb category. Like this is so stupid. I kind of I kind of love it. It made me laugh. Made me shake my head. And uh, I was I was on board. But that moment was good in a way because I was like, okay, kind of like throw your notebook out the window, take off your glasses. <laughs> you don't need to see this movie too in too sharp a detail. This is this is the movie. Then all right, let's do this. It, this is the moment where I got on board. Like let's have a dumb fun movie at this point. For sure, I, I get that. And you know. And we'll talk about this later throughout the movie. There's other parts that feel dumb as hell by the time you get to them, but it's just a matter of building up goodwill. Like in a different context, this car dance would have, I would have really loved it, but we've sat through the movie leading up to it and I'm just not as on board. That's right. But uh, for some reason, a strange gambit works. Founds of Wayne style. He's got his arms around every man's dream because Ethan Hunt and Nia Nordoff Hall, they knock boots or very expensive uh, Louboutins or whatever. After they're done having their sex, it's time for Tom Cruise to go meet his boss. And, and David, in the last Mission Impossible movie, Mr. Phelps, so I think was a character from the TV show, was played by uh, John Voight, who at the time people were like, hey, John Voight's back. And now it's like, hey, if John Voight's on fire, I wouldn't throw him any sand or water. And so Anthony Hopkins is his boss in this movie. And for a second, it's like, okay, is this what Mission Impossible is? One of the components, like he's got a new celebrity boss every time? Yeah, again, this is a movie... In transition, it doesn't quite know what it wants the series to be. This just ends up being Tony Hopps pro cameo because it's an uncredited cameo. We never see him again in the series. I think he's one of the few characters who does not die but does not show up again. 
this feels like a waste. If you don't know where you're going with it or you're not going anyplace substantial with it, then why are you bothering me with it? But David, you didn't love this riveting conversation of like, uh, next time, Agent Hunt, tell us where you're going on vacation. It wouldn't be a vacation if I told you. File your PTO hours appropriately, I guess, uh, Ethan Hunt. But David, I do like the fact that you can tell Ethan Hunt does not like this guy, which is refreshing to have someone be like, fuck you. Like just having that be kind of the overtone. Because like how many spy movies where like the spy master is, you know, doling out the orders and it was like, yes, sensei. So the fact that he's like, eat shit. Uh, I, I, I like that part. I do too. It's almost like Ethan knows what we're thinking, where he's just like, you're wasting my time. You're wasting the audience's time. It really feels like this scene between Anthony Hopkins and Tom Cruise, the conversation is just leading up to the little bit of exposition that we're going to use to propel us through the rest of the movie, where Ethan gets to a, an exchange and he tells uh, Swanbeck, he says, well, you're sorry and I'm sorry. And then Swanbeck catches that expression. He's like, why did you phrase it like that? And Ian's like, you got to be kidding me. Are you accusing me of something because of how I said a phrase that I've been saying? But then it's also like, is this a common phrase? Why is this the clue that we get? Yeah, we do pick up on that later because that's part of the audio message that the Russian doctor recorded, right? When he was uh, admitting that he injects right. himself with uh, Chimera. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, you, this is actually, we're going to hear that voiceover again. Every search for a hero must begin with something that every hero requires. A villain. Therefore, in a search for our hero, Bellerophon, we created a monster. Chimera. I beg you, Dmitri, come to Sydney and accompany me to Atlanta immediately. However we travel, I must arrive at my destination within 20 hours of departure. Uh, this will be the second time that we hear it. How many more times are we going to hear this voiceover throughout the movie? That'll be a fun game for the audience to figure out. Having Swanbeck, uh, Anthony Hopkins, pick up on that, that raised like, no, like, oh, I wonder what that's going. Like, that did not intrigue me at all. I just was like, shut the fuck up. Now, David, Anthony Hopkins, by all accounts, is, seems to be like a pretty good guy. But I heard some quote from him recently where he was talking about his acting in the Thor movie. And he was like, that's not even real acting. Like, you know, it's it's like fake acting. They give me money. I show up and I yell a bunch and then I go home or whatever. The way that people go out of their way to complain about these Marvel movies, it's almost like they don't get paid for it to do them. Like, look, I'm not I'm not a Marvel movie apologist. I know what they are exactly. But in this role, I don't think Anthony Hopkins necessarily has a lot of like meat to chew or whatever the expression is. He's got like a lot to work with here as, uh, you know, director Swanbeck. The thing that Anthony Hopkins doesn't, I think he realizes it and maybe just doesn't want to talk about it because maybe he's modest. But Anthony Hopkins is gold, David. Like, he is so engaging. You could take normal dialogue and just give it to Anthony Hopkins, and it's a million times better. So the fact that he was yelling in the movie Thor, yeah, it's good when you yell, Anthony Hopkins. His dialogue is fucking terrible in this scene. In fact, it's it's about to get worse, too. Uh, but at the same time, I can't take my ears off this guy. He's, I love Anthony Hopkins. Mac, you, you and I are on the same wavelength today because uh, there was actually a, a chunk of conversation that I, I took out of the notes where I, I essentially wanted to ask if you thought that Anthony Hopkins was a good actor. But I guess having this conversation, it's not so much whether or not he's a good actor. That's sort of immaterial. He's a salesman of his roles. Like you could give him crap dialogue in Thor, in Mission Impossible, in The Edge. He's going to sell it no matter what. But like you also look at his roles with the exception of, of a few, you know, the more higher profile award winning ones, I guess. 
his IMDb is kind of like, you know, it's a working actor, but it's nothing too special. Yeah, I mean, he, he was great, of course, as Hannibal Lecture, the monologuing murderer. Yeah, beyond that, he kind of just plays Anthony Hopkins in a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm not deriding this guy. I think Anthony Hopkins is great. And he's definitely played some different roles. I, the movie he won an Academy Award for, I did not see that. The most recent one uh, where he was like, what the fuck? Why didn't you give it to Chadwick Boseman? What is wrong with you? <laughs> so I give him some extra props for that. But Anthony Hopkins, who does seem like he did this role just because they promised him some good tapas or something. He does reveal like, okay, here's the real scope of this movie is we did not need you to recruit Nia Nordoff Hall because she's a master thief. We need you to recruit her to help stop Sean Ambrose because she used to be Sean Ambrose's ex. They used to be lovers. And she can infiltrate his organization by going in and sleeping with him again. And Ethan Hunt's like, the fuck is this? Doesn't make sense. Like, she's not a trained agent. You know, we don't own her body. We can't make her do this. And then what's Anthony Hopkins' response to this? You made the wrong assumption. Either way, we are asking her to resume a prior relationship, not do anything she hasn't already done. Voluntarily, I might add. No. She's got no training for this kind of thing. But to go to bed with a man and light him, she's a woman. She's got all the training she needs. Yeah, if that's going to be your uncredited cameo, go ahead and keep your money. That Like, you suck, <laughs> Swanbeck. You're, you're a shitty character in this movie. Yeah, which is fine if he's a shitty character, but there's no counterpoint. Ethan Hunt doesn't go, that's not cool. Uh, so the movie's like, yeah, women are tricky. You don't know. You can't trust them. I think they turn into cats when we're not looking. Is that the second time I've said that on this show? <laughs> I think so. I think I believe it. Uh, Tony Hopkins here is, I call him Tony because we're friends. He says to Ethan Hunt, he's like, yeah, dude, so your new girlfriend, <laughs> well, let's make it more patronizing. Your new little girlfriend? Yeah. I hope you accept this mission, cuck possible, because now you're going to have to send her off to to sleep with Sean Ambrose. You know, almost like Beauty of the Beast. Well, God, I watch, I, I got a four-year-old uh, <laughs> where Gaston's like, now I got to go in and propose to the bride. Like he's this, the biggest part of this mission is that she has to agree to go on it. And of course they get her to agree to go on it by showing her like not even bodies, just like scraps of metal in the ground uh, for the, the airplane crash, which again, as we mentioned earlier, you don't get the sense that they give a shit about it. They just want her to give a shit about it. So she pushes back against this. And the fact that maybe now she's Naya Nordoff all supposedly likes, you know, they're kind of, She's into Ethan Hunt. She's like, you don't have a problem with this? Me like going back to the bone shack with my old shitty boyfriend? My psycho boyfriend? What what does Ethan Hunt say here? Well, I'll tell you what. Let's just go ahead and play this audio too. You going to try and force me to do this? Generally, I don't favor coercing someone. Not when there's a chance my life could end up in their hands. Is that the only reason? Can you think of a better one? Me? No. But I was just hoping you might. Thinking that somewhere in the course of business, this got personal as well as physical. Would it make you feel any better if I didn't want you to do this? Yeah, much. Then feel better. Okay, Mac, around this point, you know, I, I've been giving this movie a wide berth. I've been I've been giving it the benefit of the doubt. At this point, I'm checking my pockets. I'm I'm getting ready to sign the sign the tab. I I think I might leave after uh, after dialogue like that. Yeah, where are these uh action scenes we were told about? Because that was just kind of like some uh, misogyny. This movie doesn't really care about her perspective very much. We're kind of more just concerned about the fact that Ethan Hunt's going to have to let his new girlfriend sleep with somebody else. Now, David, we've seen a lot of spy movies before where a male spy 
has to seduce somebody to accomplish his mission. And even though like James Bond is having to, you know, sex up uh, this evil lady, you still get the idea that he's enjoying it on some level, right? Can you remember a movie where a male spy has sex with someone they really don't want to have sex with? Uh, I feel like it may be in like a parody movie where it was like, uh-oh, this, you know, big old heiress, I got to sleep with her or something, but like not in a legitimate movie. Well, uh, there's that show, The Americans. The show, if, if you never saw it, was about these sort of like Russian sleep agents like posing as uh, an American couple in the 1980s. And there was a, a sequence uh, that flashed back to their training and it just showed them these, these agents to be Matthew Reese's character just sleeping with a shit ton of people just to like kind of be trained in that. And one of them was like sort of a, a not very attractive, uh, <laughs> but older man. You know, there was no indication that Matthew Reese's character was gay or bisexual or anything like that. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. An interesting level of like thought given to a spy's backstory, which you don't normally see because, you know, this the spy genre, it's real easy for it to fall into parody just because it's, you know, it's we're living in this post-James Bond world. The Tandy Noon's character has to do this. I don't know if I'd say it's, you know, uh, the R word here, but uh, I, I still don't like it. Feels weird. I mean, you're asking us to follow along a plot that any other spy movie would have set up a, a caper to circumvent, where it's like, oh, no, 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 we don't want you to have to sleep with this guy. We'll plot a break in. We'll get the information we need. We'll keep you from doing this. And then you have a struggle between, no, I want it. That's the, that's the conflict. To make her do this thing that she doesn't want to do, for what, really? Because you're still going to end up Ah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with. I'm right there with you. I'm not saying that like, oh, you should make her character want to do it. Like that's a not a perfect fix by any <laughs> means, but it still feels odd. Tandy Newton, by the way, is great in this movie because Tandy Newton is great. Mm-hmm. I kind of was like, oh, I wonder why she didn't continue in any of these. And the answer is that she and Tom Cruise did not get along. Oh, because apparently during this balcony scene, from what I read, she complained like, man, this my dialogue sucks. And the Tom Cruise was like, all right, let's fix it right now. Let's switch. We'll you know switch roles and we'll like we'll figure it out. And it was like very aggressive and like not very mm-hmm. nice. And she said she like after filming that day, she called her friend Jonathan Demi. Uh, oh, name drop, Tandy dude. She was like, "Hey, Wes, working with this dude is not great." Because she was like, "Look, say what you will about Tom Cruise, but he was he really tried to fix that scene. Like he's very intense, basically, is what she said. She did not necessarily enjoy working with Tommy C, which I think is kind of funny. But yes, but Naya Nordoff Hall agrees to this plan she's gonna be you know she's gonna be part of the impossible mission forces and and here we go that's right and how's that gonna happen well here's how it's gonna happen ethan's gonna set a trap for ambrose where naya is pretend arrested and must run to ambrose for help but ambrose doesn't care if it's a trap because he's crazy horny after some very problematic implied reunion sex ambrose takes naya to the horse races where he will meet with a potential buyer for chimera ceo of biosite john mccloy played by domino gleason's dad brendan Naya uses her actual skills as a thief to steal a memory card from Ambrose and pass it to Ethan, who learns more about the deadly power of Chimera. These Mission Impossible movies, they take us all around the world. So where are we going now? Mac, we're going back to Australia. So we went to Spain, and now we're back to Australia where we'll stay for the rest of the movie. That's the other thing, too. You know, these movies take such pride in being these globe-trotting adventures. We'll take you to exotic locales. It's Spain and Sydney, and that's it. Yeah, the first Mission Impossible took you to Prague and also Virginia. <laughs> and then I think a third place. Uh, Germany? Who cares? So the, this whole chunk's going to start with Ethan setting up Naya. They're putting fake mugshots out there. You know, they're spreading it to all the wire services because they know Sean's monitoring all of the wire services after the crash. He wants to see if his name comes up or anything. 
So he sees he sees Naya's name and he he comes to her rescue because that's that's the plan. The plan is I'll make we'll make Naya look desperate. We'll make her look like she's in trouble. So Sean will come to the rescue. So Sean commissions a, a boat to come pick her up and bring her to his villa on the shores of Sydney. And the boat pulls up to this long pier and we watch Naya walk down this long pier and we watch Sean wait at the end of the pier for her to walk to him. And then she gets there and her scarf blows off and it's going to blow away. But no, Sean catches it. And I'm just like, P.U., man. Like, we don't need this. This movie is two hours long. Okay, here's the thing. Sorry. <laughs> hey, I like it. For as simple as this movie is, like when you boil it down to its elements, it's a very basic plot. We spend so much time in just this padding of the movie that doesn't really take us anywhere. It's it's like the studio came in, noted John Woo and noted this movie to death and decided to hang on to the wrong things. So instead of hanging on to a John Woo action scene, they hang on to a John Woo slow motion romance scene. And it's just, it's decisions like that that end up ruining the overall movie. It was a weird scene, especially because like, what are we trying to establish here? That uh, Shawnee Ambrose is a creep? It's like done. A creep that can grab a scarf. Oh my goodness. Uh, look out, Ethan Hunt. It's your most impossible mission yet. But then there's something else here. It's a little clue as to what could have been because Nia wants to know how Sean knew that she was in trouble. How'd you track me down? And, and he says something to the effect of, well, I found you how I usually find you. Magic. So you're telling me if this movie was three and a half hours long and he's saying something like that, and even if you include the sleight of hand, let's say, with the scarf, were we deprived of a magic-related subplot? Could this have been some sort of Now You See Me movie where Sean has magic up his sleeve? I would have rather seen that movie. Well, it's funny you should say magic, David, because what happens is we also get to meet Ethan Hunt's Mission Impossible team in this movie. One of the few carryover elements in the Mission Impossible series is, of course, Ving Rhames' character, Luther Stickle. And he makes an appearance in this movie. He's like a, he's still a, I, he's a hacker. I feel like they kind of forget that later in the other series. He's got another agent in this movie. I think his name is Billy. Uh, he's pretty forgettable, so let's forget him. But they're trying to like track her via satellite. And at some point they lose her. And it's like, well, I guess we, the satellite's not working and just we can't see her there. Which it's funny because I was like, oh, wow, finally a non-magic computer in a movie. Because <laughs> usually it's like, hold on, let me do a couple things. Like I bounced off a satellite in a turtle shell. And then like uh, I entered some code that knew a witcher, it knew how to say friend in Elvish. And so we opened a door and then now we can. But no, the fact they have a non-magic computer. But Dave, as soon as Naya enters Sean Ambrose's uh, island compound here, uh, Luther Stickle, played by Ving Rhames, says this to Ethan Hunt. She's in the compound. We just rolled up a snowball and tossed it into hell. Now we'll see what Jansen has. Wow. Ah, uh, this man. I like it. I gotta say. Oh, no! It was stupid. He said that. I, <laughs> I went, hell yeah, out loud. I don't know how much involvement John Woo had in the script. I, I can't imagine very much, but there's a lot of this movie that plays like dialogue from Hard Boiled that got translated over to English. There, There's something kind of beautiful but corny about a lot of this dialogue and and that's that's another example of that like that's cool tough cop talk or cool tough secret agent talk but it's just it feels so silly yeah for sure super fucking silly and so naya is in the compound and i guess she's you know pretending to enjoy having sex with uh rogue agent shawnee ambrose and what do we see here david we see ethan hunt 
we get his emotional point of view because he goes outside his cabin, wherever the fuck he is, and he's just like looking off into the distance. You could tell it's tough for him, David. It's tough for him. It, I laughed out loud at this moment because you're, you're absolutely right. While Sean and Naya are in this beautiful little hideaway, Ethan's in the outback of Australia, just staring up at the distance. It's like uh, it's like somewhere out there. He's like Fievel, just uh, thinking somewhere out there, my Naya's getting plowed by Sean. I laughed out loud at this. This is the stupidest fucking thing. The fact that the movie thinks we care how he feels about it and not her? Like, uh, oh, that plane crash must have been tough for you, Ethan Hunt. Like, what? He didn't fucking die on it. Ah, this movie. It's just, we. it does not care about her perspective at all, which sucks because for a big chunk of this movie, Tandy Newton is the main character. Those parts of the movie, David, I'm not bored by them. She definitely held my interest when, you know, the uh, thrust of the movie was on what her character was doing. You know, you hear a lot about like female characters like don't have their own, they don't have agency, right? They don't get to decide what they do. Their actions are always predetermined. The plot of this movie is to not give her character any agency. So it really is kind of gross. I don't give a fuck about how Ethan feels about it. Let's just get some plot. But that's what's so fascinating about what remains of what was initially a three and a half hour movie. Because in this imaginary cut of the movie, this plays more like a two-hander. I'm surprised we see as much of Tandy Newton's arc in this movie as we do. Especially since it is Mission Impossible 2. It's a Tom Cruise movie. We do get a lot of Tandy Newton, so I wonder if her character was a little more fleshed out. Maybe it doesn't excuse a lot of what she goes through in the final in the final product, but I, I I wonder. I wonder if there's a version that that Tandy Newton feels a little more proud of. Yeah, based on her interaction with Cruz, where she's like, "My dialogue sucks." I don't know if there was, but I mean, Tandy Newton at this point, I did not know who she was until she made Mission Impossible Two. So I don't think that's a movie you necessarily turned down. I mean, I think this was the highest grossing movie. Uh, that year. It was not the highest grossing movie from that year because I think The Grinch Who Stole Christmas like opened up late in the year. Right. And like if you count its grosses over this year and next, I think it, it outpaced uh, Mission Impossible 2. But this movie was a hit. Don't make the mistake of thinking it wasn't, listener. But we're going to spend some time with Sean and his Smithers named, oh God, named Hugh. Stamp. <laughs> Hugh Stamp. That's right. Another great name in this movie. So they're going to be talking about Chimera. They're going to be giving us some more exposition. This will be the third time we hear Nikorovich's voiceover. They're going to pass along a, a, a memory card. It's got some important data that they're going to show to a prospective buyer. Mac, I love overreacting to outdated tech. As much as I overreact throughout this movie because there's a lot of like hokey moments where it's going for action or it's going for thrills, but it doesn't land. But I'm still like, whoa! I still like doing that exact same reaction to outdated tech. So when I saw that 32 meg memory card, whoa, 32 megs. Can you imagine how many photos are on that thing? It was great. Yeah. Whoa, half an MP3 or whatever. Now, David, I also remember there's some art in Sean Ambrose's room, which makes no fucking sense, but I don't remember what the art is of. So listener, if you are watching this movie after listening to this podcast, please tell, remind us what the art on the wall is. Because I just remember being like, the fuck is the point of this art? What does it say about this character? I think it was, I don't remember, it was like a landscape. It's not like shocking. It wasn't like the art in like Royal Tenenbaums where it was like the weird mask dudes riding the ATVs. I was like, the fuck is this? Uh, it was more just like, okay, this this dude, I guess, um, did just like bought out a hotel and like stole the the art of uh, Holiday Inn Express. But David, his henchman, Ambrose's henchman, Stamp, he's not stupid, right? He was like, you don't think it's fucking weird, man, that she shows up out of the blue? 
like right as we're trying to like pull off the biggest, most treacherous heist of our lives, like right as we betray the IMF force. Oh, that's the other thing too, David, is when Tony Hopkins is like, hey, do you remember Sean Ambrose? Do you know him, Agent Sean Ambrose? And Ethan Hunt's like, yeah, I remember him. He uh, murders people. <laughs> like He's like, yeah, I remember. He's got a reputation for killing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, he does. And Sean Ambrose is like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Stamp. Okay, because, uh, you know, she's back now. But I got to say, she wasn't exactly gagging for it when she left you six months ago. The question is, do you trust her? Then uh, Sean Ambrose, because I don't know if you know this, Dave, but he's a, he's a bad guy. He's bad. He grabs Stamp's hand, and he's about to cut off his little tip of his pinky finger with a uh, like a cigar cutter, right? And uh, Stamp, of course, doesn't try to stop him at all. He just takes it. And he, Ambrose, says this in response to Stamp. I hear you must realize that some of us have the burden of sex to deal with. And I may or may not know why she thinks she's here, but I'm willing to take the risk. Because you... I am gagging for it. Uh, David, a lot to unpack here, and I don't think I want to. Some of us have the burden of sex to deal with? What does that mean? Well, because Hugh is such a loser second-in-command that he'll never experience the, the joys of physical passion because nobody wants a, a, nobody wants a flunky. So what he's saying is, like, you don't understand this, Hugh, but I got to get my rocks off. I can't imagine any other head bad guy giving this speech. What if Thanos stopped right in the middle of Avengers Endgame, and he's like, I got to bring balance to the universe. Also, uh, I got to get my dong rocked because it's <laughs> big old purple nuts right here. <laughs> they got, I'm in pain. They need to be drained. I don't know where I'm going with this. It is an oversimplification because I feel like that is the subtext of every action movie where it's like, oh, this, this villain, he's just down bad. He just wants to get laid. So for this movie to just come out and overtly say, he even has a line prior to that clip we played where he says, suppose she is a Trojan horse. Why should I deny myself a ride or two? Disgusting. Oh. But like you said, that's what this movie is. And there is something delightful about it. But it's not the end product of this movie that I find delightful. Like, hey, look, if Tana Newton wanted to uh, seduce me to send me to jail, yeah, I'd let her seduce me. But also, Tana Newton in this movie does not want to seduce him. She, <laughs> I'm gonna, I don't want to keep bringing it up, but she doesn't want to be there. But David, this phrase... Uh, I am gagging for it, gagging for it. The fuck does that mean? Woe betide anyone who uses that in my presence. I will not, I will not stand for gagging for it. Look, I, when you say gag in relation to sex, I think we know what we're talking about. So is that what it's implying here? She's not gagging for it. Is that some weird implication? Like she's not gagging for it, Sean. She's not uh, choking on your huge horse dick. Is that, is that what you got? Or what, what, what am I supposed to take away from this? Okay, David, I just typed gagging for it, and then it, on the Google bar, and it auto-populated gagging for it meaning, and then before I hit enter, I deleted it, and then I opened up incognito mode, because I don't want that. <laughs> and it says, definition, to want something or want to do something very much, I'm gagging for a coffee. No, I, I get it. Have a strong desire, especially for sex. No, I get it. But why that word is what I want to know. There's there's a charm to it in the context of like, oh, yeah, I'm gagging for a coffee. Oh, my God, I'm absolutely gagging for a slice of pizza. 
But yeah, when it's like, oh my God, I'm absolutely gagging for some cock. I was like, well, let's not use that particular <laughs> particular term, please. This should just, the podcast, David, delete everything that came before this conversation. Let's really tank this podcast. <laughs> Is it like a dog thing where it's like, oh, uh, you're you're pulling at your leash so much to get this. You're choking yourself. You're gagging yourself. But I wouldn't consider like a choke a gag. A gag is internal in the mouth. Well, see, I wonder if this is if this is the derivation of where thirsty comes from because you're so thirsty, you're gagging for you got to have some refreshment. Back up, gagging. Like you know, I'm I'm connecting dots here. I don't know. Wait, hold on a second. Is that the Mission Impossible music that was slowly queuing up underneath? <laughs> is this our mission, David? Because I do not accept it. Let's move on. No, let's not. But Mac, we're going to move on to, uh, they're going to go to some horse races. That's where they're going to meet the CEO of Biosite. His name is going to be John McCloy. He's going to be played by Brendan Gleeson, who we don't see until 48 minutes into this movie. Yeah, I was like, oh, I forgot he was in this, but I don't even know if I knew who Brendan Gleeson was at the time. So we're going to the racetrack while Sean is meeting with McCloy. There's going to be this whole caper going on with Ethan and Naya and the crew where they're going to try to pilfer the memory card from Sean's pocket upload it to find out what's on it, then put the memory card back in Sean's jacket pocket. So Ethan and Nye are going to be on comms. And uh, what's his face? The Australian guy who we couldn't care less about. He's going to drop off an earpiece. Tanaya, she's going to put it's it in. It's Billy. His name's Billy. <laughs> he was supposed to be played by Steve Zahn. That would have been much more interesting. But David, real quick, she takes it out of his inner left jacket pocket, the left one. Interesting note to remember in your brain for later. Yes. Why would I forget that? Of course, left pocket. But David, just in case you forgot, uh, there's this exchange from uh, Luther, and uh, who's on comms, and Ethan. Ambrose just pulled the camera's memory card and put it into an envelope. Put it in his inner left jacket pocket. Confirm left jacket pocket. Roger that. Naya. Uh, Ambrose is on his way back to you. There's an envelope inside. His left jacket pocket. Dave, they really want you to remember it's in the left jacket pocket, I guess, because uh, at this point, uh, they've said it quite a bit. Well, it's just taking up memory space in my head now because I, I don't need to know that. Of course, everybody's going to remember left jacket pocket. Later, when Naya puts the memory card back in his pocket after they you know, copy it or whatever, beep, boop, boop, bop, she puts it in his right jacket pocket. Oh, no. And we slow-mo that moment because he, he realizes it. He's like, that's not the right pocket. Oh, no. Why wasn't Naya Nordoff Hall listening those million times they said the correct jacket pocket? Why wasn't this exceptional thief exceptional at being a thief? Or perhaps she needed some training to do this mission. But there's a moment here where she pickpockets the memory card. She's taking it down to Ethan. She meets Ethan in this crowded thoroughfare. She hands it off. But Ethan's trying to be very careful in case they're being watched. He's like, don't turn around. But she turns around anyway, and she's like, and he, he responds, he's like, you turned around. And she kind of gives him a sour look, and she goes, what are you going to do, spank me? I do not understand the dynamic of this interaction. Mac, is there something I'm missing between these two in this moment? Well, David, the screenwriters here, they want to let us know that Tandy Newton's character is not happy with their current position. And the way they do that is by giving her a dialogue that makes her seem like uh, pouty but playful, David, because... I don't think they know how to write a well-rounded, human-feeling female character, but that is the hand we are dealt with. Yes, but she successfully uh, hands off the memory card. They upload the footage. She gets the memory card back, puts it in the wrong pocket. And we're looking at the footage of 
essentially the effects of Camara. You know, Nikorovich's partner took photos of himself infecting himself. This was him after 20 hours. This was him after 22 hours, that sort of thing. There's no way this footage is clear on a 32 meg memory card. Like, it's of all the things that could take me out of a spy movie, it's little moments like that because I can relate to it because I know I have a point of reference to 32 megs on a memory card. And I know this isn't going to work. But when it came time to add a Mission Impossible movie to the mountain, uh, and I feel like it did come time. One of the reasons I wanted to find a starting point was to figure out this Mission Impossible formula, or, or at least I'm mean, going to use the word study here, but you know, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm no brainiac, but kind of study this formula because I feel like the, the Christopher McQuarrie crop, which I think is what Rogue Nation, Dead Reckoning, and then what's the other one? Fallout. That they definitely have like a certain kind of feel to them, but it's a, it's a feel that is based off of the previous movies. And I wanted to compare Mission Impossible 2 and the way to structure it, its elements to the elements that are present or they become sort of like thematic or recurring, you know, um, factors in the previous Mission Impossible movies. Like the fact that like Simon Pegg is in all of these, but not Paula Patton. She doesn't get to continue to be in it. But something that happens in this movie that does not happen again in another Mission Impossible movie, Ethan Hunt takes a backseat for such a big chunk of this movie. It's almost kind of feels like a two-hander. And yeah, that is not something that happened again. I think that's the lesson that Tom Cruise learned. I could just see him sitting there in Man's Chinese Theater, like so mad that he's not on screen for a big chunk of this movie. Or not not on screen, but not the the person who's like, you know, leading the action. Well, it's a noticeable amount to the point where I was wondering if he had scheduling conflicts, if he was like shooting something else at this time and had to be away. Like it the star of this movie is gone for a noticeable portion of the middle of this movie. The way that in Ghost Protocol, they have the IMF team, basically like everything goes wrong. Like all of their gear breaks, nothing goes right. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's like a different take on like these other like spy gadget movies where everything goes right. And oh, suddenly Batman has a fireproof cape. You know, we didn't set that up ahead of time, but I guess he has one. It might have been an interesting take to have Ethan Hunt kind of in this role where he could not take action. It's like, you know, he, he wants to get in, but for various reasons he couldn't. He'd have to rely more on other agents. But, I mean, the way the movie set it up was so clumsy that I just, you know, I don't think that angle is really like a legitimate, legitimately explored in this movie, I will say. Well, you know, with that in mind, sorry, you know, before we proceed, how do you think Dogray Scott's doing as a villain so far in this movie? Like, do you buy him? Is he working for you? I feel like he's chewing a lot of scenery and he seems like a bad dude. The idea of like, he's one of us and he turned bad. I mean, that's kind of a pretty tried and true staple. I mean, you know, look at like Goldeneye with like, you know, Sean Bean. He's like, oh, what? I thought you were my friend. Now you're bad. Or five other James Bond movies. But in this one, like, I feel like that they kind of wasted that a little bit. It would have been cool to maybe show them as friends or something to have some sort of like relationship with each other or to show him as a very capable person. But yeah, I, I don't know. How do you feel? How do you feel about him, David? Not great. You know, he's not a formidable presence. You know, he's not imposing. He's not particularly terrifying. I would have liked for them to have done something to set him up as a formidable opponent. If he is a member of IMF gone rogue, then let's see them go toe-to-toe in some kind of way. Let's see them match wits. Even a moment like him getting the memory card pickpocketed from him, that sure would have been an awesome moment to have him place a dummy memory card and be one step ahead. Yeah, this is, he's not working for me, but we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah, you're right. Like the way that Javier Bardem's character in Skyfall, because he was like a former double uh, O agent, the way that his character is Silva, like he basically was like, oh, I know how the double O, like I know how this British Secret Service works, what their moves, what their reactions are going to be. 
So he was able to like use that against them and basically kind of like outmaneuver them. Whereas there's none of that by Sean Ambrose. Like the only point of having him be a former IMF agent was just so he could have that same kind of like uh, face mask technology where he can create a mask that looks exactly like somebody else. But David, we cut to inside of a limousine where we see CEO of Biosite. You know him, you love him. Brendan Gleeson, McCloy, and he's reading a newspaper now, what, is, what did it say, David? The headline says, McCloy dies of rare strain of influenza. Yeah, and he's like, uh, driver, driver. Like, he's he's pretty calm about this, like, what the, if I saw that, I would freak the geek out. But what is really happening here, David? So, Mac McCloy is getting abducted, and he's going to get infected oh. with Chimera by Nikorovich. What? So, while he's getting uh, abducted and infected, McCloy is going to reveal that Ambrose only has the antidote, Belaborforon, and that the virus Chimera is still safely in the biocyte labs. But that's not Nikorovich. That's Ethan. But then who's the Ethan talking with Naya? That's Ambrose, who learns of Ethan's attempt to break into the lab and destroy the last remaining Chimera samples. It's an action set piece we'll call Lab Woofare, because David, this movie's directed by... So Ethan is able to destroy all but one sample. But when Naya injects Chimera into herself, rather than turn it over to Ambrose, the Ethan hunt is on to locate the antidote in time to save Naya from further infection. Yeah, one more thought about that fake newspaper, David. The fact that they had the time to like lay that out in whatever preceded Photoshop back then, PageMaker, I don't even know, and like mock, print that out, but then like stick it in his car. We're really going that extra mile, uh, Impossible Mission Force. I didn't know they have a graphic designer on their team. <laughs> this is the stupidest thing. This is, you know, for all of the money that the Impossible Mission Force has, this is just a magic copier. This is just, you know, it's the uh, the Rod and Todd Flanders printing press. And like, if I'm John McCloy and I get into my limo and I see that, I'm not taking that as a threat. I'm thinking someone's playing a prank on me. Like, all right, guys, who whose idea was this? This is This is not a serious moment. You know, in Mission Impossible Fallout, I think that's the movie where he pretends to be like Wolf Blitzer or like maybe somebody does. And so they have to basically grab the CNN graphics package and like put it over their little footage. So where's that movie? I'm going to follow around the graphic designer, the on-staff designer who just gets a call. And they're like, okay, I need a newspaper that says this. And he's like, why? And he's like, I can't fucking tell you. He gets all these like weird design jobs. And he's like, yeah, you cannot know the context. Now I want some sort of like a Mad Men universe where there's just this bullpen of disgruntled artists trying to create stuff for for Mission Impossible. Like he gets recruited the same way, like Ethan Hunt has sex with him. But then it's just like, <laughs> you know, are you familiar with Adobe Creative Suite? The, okay, great. Please, please join us. But Mac, Mc, McCloy is taken to some laboratory hospital setup where he's made to think that he's been infected with some influenza and he's going to meet Nikorovich, who is actually Ethan in disguise. That's going to mean that Sean is dressed up as Ethan outside of Sean's house where Naya is snooping around. So there's a moment here. It's Naya and Sean Ethan. I noticed that Sean Ethan is taller than Naya. Now, knowing what we know about Tom Cruise and, and his height, is this supposed to be that way in the movie? Is Sean Ethan supposed to be suspiciously taller than what we know Ethan Hunt to be? That'd be interesting if they did that. They should have done that. But no, I don't know. That's a good question. Naya is sneaking around the compound and she bumps into Ethan. And the uh, scene that the parallel scene that's happening at the same time where Nurkovich is interrogating McCloy. And McCloy's like, oh, I guess I'm having a dream because I'm so uh, sick out of my mind. We, the audience, are never supposed to believe that, like, that's really Nurkovich back from the dead. We're supposed to think that 
That's Ambrose using his face-on technology to pretend to be Nurkovich. So when fake Nurkovich takes off his face, and that's Ethan Hunt, and we're like, wait a second, then the guy we think is Ethan Hunt, he takes his fake face off, and it's Sean Ambrose. I got to say, David, I didn't I didn't see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> you, fu- you got me, movie. You fucking got me. Uh, I like to say I'm smarter than that, and I saw right through it. I did it. I think I said, whoa, out loud. <laughs> David, this idea that they're like, okay, we'll tell you what, we'll get Brendan Gleeson's character you know, we'll, we'll inject him with something. He'll, he'll seem sick. And then when he wakes up the next day, we'll just dump his body in a limo back at his place. He'll think this whole thing was a dream. Does that seem plausible at all to you, David? That doesn't seem plausible to me. And there's another thing that doesn't seem plausible to me here. And that is that before McCloy takes off from Biosite for the evening, he's being followed by Wallace. He's being followed by one of Sean's men, but we never resolve that thread. Was that a fake? Was that a fake Wallace? Did we abduct Wallace or did we we trick him in some kind of way? Like none of this adds up in this moment. Wallace's presence made me think that this abduction was done by the Ambrose crew. And I think that's the point of him being there. And it's like, oh, you, that did help to sell that. Like, whoa, that reveal. However, yeah, it does not make sense. But in my notes, I wrote down, seems like a stretch, but okay. But you can apply that to a lot of different stuff. So they learn that the few remaining samples of Chimera are in this lab. And now, David, does this uh, lab look like a real lab or does it look like an art installation like a lot of movies? You're correct, David. It's another art installation movie lab. That's where Ambrose is going to strike. We got to get in there first. And the only way they can get in there first is by sneaking in through these like vents in the top of the lab building. And they, they uh, now David, they have to get in in a very kind of uh, covert way, which is a helicopter thuk, 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 <laughs> hovers above the building for an extended period of time. I get that. Is that clean? I don't know. It seems like a stretch, but okay. The way they do it is Tom Cruise is kind of going to like drop down on a wire, kind of similar to, did that make you think of Mission Impossible 1? It absolutely did. I think I would say they were paying homage to themselves by doing this. It made me wonder if the producers of this film felt pressure to include some like trapeze wire work. Like that's what people want out of these movies. They want to see Tom Cruise on the trapeze up there. 100%. And that goes back to what I was talking about where I had moments of feigned wonder. The movie wants you to be impressed by stuff. And you're just like, wow, but it's really underwhelming. This is one of those moments for me because this is the moment that we get from a John Woo movie. This is the Intel chess scene, like we had in Hard Target, where they're both reading files on each other. This is where Sean's expertise as a former IMF agent comes in. He knows Ethan's moves. He knows Ethan's going to try to sneak into the building, so he's going to try to come from up above, and he's going to try to sneak in through the the slats. It's just not working for me. Like Again, it kind of feels like that manufactured action where... Okay, if he doesn't get through the slats, I, I I don't I don't care. He'll find another way. I I don't know. It's just not working for me. Yeah, and the way that they need to get into the lab is uh, Luther Stickle has to you know hack his way in on the computer to like open up all of the vents uh, or like turn off the turn off some cameras and open the vents, keep them open so Ethan Hunt can slip inside. So he's like, I'm still working on it. I'm trying to get the code right to like open up the the vents and Ethan Hunt just like dives in anyway. And he's like, all right, well in five seconds, he's going to be street pizza. You, you better hurry up and fucking get it. 
this is code he's like searching through. It's not something he can just like put his back into. It's like, now or never, we got to push super hard. It's not how this works, stupid. It's one of those things that betrays the movie because Ethan just decides to jump. He's like, you know, ready or not, here I come. And by the grace of God, the, the slats open up and he's able to fall through them in time. So in that moment, as an audience member watching this for the first time, there's no sense of danger or there's no sense of error or the possibility of error. When he jumps off that helicopter, you know he's going to make it through the slats. And so if the movie is comfortable with you just knowing that he's going to be okay, then this movie doesn't work. Yeah. Speaking of this movie not working, this podcast is not called uh, uh, Plot Destroyers. We're not like trying to <laughs> find every plot hole in this movie. The idea here is they're like, okay, he even says, if we destroy Chimera at Biosite, then that means Ambrose is sitting on a cure without a disease. The thing is about this movie is that they're not invading a government, right? They're not like, uh, you know, going so like, oh, you you could should not break into the Kremlin, Ethan Hunt. That is bad. You're a bad boy. This is a fucking corporation which has a virus. Just tell the government and raid <laughs> this place. There's nothing stopping you from doing it. Just get on the news. They they made a fucking virus. Let's go in there and destroy it. At this point, they're just trying to do this just to kind of fuck with Sean Ambrose, it feels like. Did I care about that while watching the movie for the first time? Honestly, no. I just wanted to see a fight scene. Like I said earlier in the movie, I already like turned off the part of my brain that required this movie to make sense. And so I was like, yeah, okay, I guess they got to get in there. Like I was like, sure, they got to, they definitely got to destroy that virus. It does feel weird that something on this grand of a scale really does boil down to, all right, we got to see that money exchange. Once we see the buy, then we can take him in. Yeah, because also the idea that like a a government, the idea like, oh, we'll get rich because once we release this virus into the wild, we're the only ones that'll have a cure and we'll make billions. It's like, yeah, okay, you'll probably make a lot of money. But you think if there's a worldwide pandemic and this company had the cure and they're like, we're not sharing. Do you think any government would be like, well, that's, you know, they got a right to not share. No, they would basically like kick open their doors and like, you fucking give us that vaccine. I mean, it almost kind of happened. Uh you know, with, with the COVID vaccines. It didn't though. Thanks, Bill Gates, but whatever. But we're going to, we're going to go to the lab. We're going to have this action set piece at, at the biosite labs. This action set piece works for me. <laughs> this is faint praise, but it, because it's coming along at such a late stage in the movie, we've sat through an hour, maybe even an hour and a half at this point of kind of an insufferable, kind of a confusing movie. So for action to show up now, I'm not, I'm not feeling it like I should. Yeah, this movie definitely, I wrote in my notes, 80 minutes in to like finally get going here. But uh, so yeah, Ethan meets up with Ambrose in the lab and they have some gunplay. And there's some cool action in here. For some reason, there's like a cool spinning shot at some point. Ethan Hunt does like a little spin move for some reason. He's grinning like an idiot. At some point, Naya ends up with like the last little like injector gun of the virus. And she's like, man, as soon as I turn this over to Ambrose, because Ambrose has the upper hand, Ambrose is going to kill me. So what'd she do? She injects into herself and he's like, well, fine. Now I can't fucking kill you until I figure out my next move. Tom Cruise is basically like, stay alive. No matter what happens, I will find you. And then he jumps out of a window and then yay, you're having fun. It is fun. Okay, so here's my adventure with this movie. So the first time I'm watching this movie, Naya injects herself with the chimera. Ethan sets his stopwatch for 20 hours because that's how much time he's got to, to get an antidote into Naya. 
So she threatens to kill herself. She's like, look, there's no way you can get both of us out of here. Save yourself. I'm done for. So Ethan has a moment where he grabs her by the shoulders. He's like, we've got 19 hours and 58 minutes. I'm going to get that antidote in you. And then he sets off an explosion charge, blows a hole through the wall, jumps out the hole through the wall and skydives out to his mission to rescue Naya. On the second viewing, I marked out. But on the first viewing, I was so out of this movie, I was goofing on this at this point. This feels, again, going back to writing a parody of an action movie, like this feels like it's so derivative, it, it just, it doesn't feel sincere. But watching it the second time, I kind of, I'm more sympathetic to what John Woo is going for with this movie. He is going for that moment of stay alive, I will find you. It's it's the movie's fault that it's not working, but I did recognize it for what it was. I'm going to give this one half a mark out moment. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes, why are you yelling? Because I did not know why he was yelling at her. But at the same time, it was like, oh, things are intense now. I, I like this. I feel like things are finally getting going here. I wish this would have happened uh, a lot earlier in the movie. But you know what? We're in it now. We're, we're speeding ahead to the end. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting excited to where things are going. It was the same here. Well, Mac, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is action. <laughs> Ambrose arranges to make the sale with McCloy while Ethan infiltrates the hideout to rescue Naya. But Naya was released in downtown Sydney to give Ambrose some leverage in negotiation. Ethan foils the sale, throws on some face-obscuring shades, and hops on a bike for some hot pursuit. But here comes Ambrose and his remaining men. While Luther goes to retrieve Naya, it's Ethan and Ambrose in an action set piece we'll call IMF Death Battle. Now, David, you kind of breezed over something here. There was a riveting discussion, a riveting negotiation between the Biosite CEO and Ambrose here over some like stock options and some some points on the deal. Oh my, people are glued to their seat. I, I, I don't know about you, David. I busted out my calculator. I was doing like, that's going to be worth like, oh my God, he stands to make 37. Like I just, oh, I, I was glued to it. It was really boring. But David, this infiltration scene when she they're breaking into uh, the Ambrose hideout, this is when things get kicked into John Woo mode. And I start... There's some really awesome moments of this thing. Are they cheesy? Yeah, but still I love You know, going back to what you were saying regarding the negotiations. So if I'm a bad guy, if I'm trying to sell off this this virus, I don't know if I want to leave a paper trail. And by that, I mean, I don't know if I want to be paid in stocks that I'm going to have to hold on to in order to become eventually the 51% shareholder of this company. And then I basically, basically become Kylo Ren where I've inherited this business and now I have to run it. And I didn't fucking want that. I just wanted to be rich and powerful. Yeah, it's super weird. It's like, we can give you the amount of money this is worth. He's like, no, I want to run the company. Again, why? He's like, I just, I think I'd, you know, we go to, we'd hold some golf tournaments and like, uh, you know, maybe I would uh, end up on like an influencers list. Yeah, it's really baffling why this dude wants to, yeah, run a company again. But like you said, meanwhile, Ethan Hunt's infiltrating the island. This is where the action's coming in. He's, we, we see pigeons, we see doves, we know the action's coming. This is good. This is what I wanted the entire movie. He's infiltrating the hideout. He's mowing down bad guys. Yeah, this works, but it's a little too late. But David, at some point, Ethan uh, decides to tell us that shit has indeed gotten real. And he blows open a door. And the door frame, David, the outline of it now, David, is on fire. And you see some doves go by. And what does Ethan do? Does he bust through the door, guns a-blazing? Nah, man. He just walks past the door. 
So you could just see him like framed in fire. Ooh, David, I marked out here. Okay. Uh, you made the scene for me to mark out and I marked out. I, I didn't quite mark out, but I was almost there because the explosion that creates this hole takes out two stunt people and it's very impressive. But again, going back to the original half mark out I just had a moment ago, I, I'm not quite there with the movie, but I... I mean, it's a fucking dove that flies through the doorway before Ethan shows up. Like, you have to appreciate what this movie is. I mean, they might as well have just cut to John Woo going, damn, right? <laughs> Are there any other moments in the Mission Impossible movies where Ethan Hunt just has some straight up swagger? Like, no, because that's not what these movies are about. It is kind of what John Woo movies are about at times where people are just like, I'm a fucking badass, deal with it. And so uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I, I, I did too. I, I'm, this movie is is winning me back. Um. And you also get a fight between Ethan and Hugh. There's going to be a showdown there. Hugh Stamp? Hugh Stamp, the very same. There's going to be some misdirection with doves that Hugh is going to fall for. So we're going to get a moment here where Ethan comes back. He's having a hard time communicating with, with Sean. And Sean kind of monologues uh, before he he blows Ethan away. But it turns out that's not Ethan. That's actually Hugh with a mask. Mac, this is Hard Boiled 2000. This is... The end of the movie where the cops pretend to be the security guard pretending to be the bad guy. I don't know. It's confusing as hell, but it's John Woo level of confusing. So at this point in the movie, they've already done the, oh my God, he was using a mask to pretend to be another character we already know. They've already done that trick twice. So do you think anyone in the theater at this point was like, oh shit, I guess uh, they're really going to, he got the upper hand on Ethan Hunt. I mean, I did anyone not see this coming? No, I think that's by design. Going back to, you know, what we were talking about with Tom Cruise jumping through the the slats where you don't get a sense that he's in any danger. I think the movie at this point, what it ended up being after getting cut or getting noted to death, I think it revels in being on the nose. I think it, it does not care that it has no surprises. It does not care that you see it coming a mile away. It just wants to be there for that kind of that dopamine release of, wasn't this a fun movie? You'll forget about it as soon as you leave the theater. But this was a fun moment. I You could have cut all this stuff. I didn't care about this. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, it's him the whole time. Just kill him already. Maybe if they had made it like really gross, I'd just have a little bit more fun with it. The most fun they have with it is Doug Ray Scott's reaction. He makes a really great, just, you foiled me. You know, the, his, his scream of, of defeat is really exceptional. But yeah, it was, if that's the payoff for all of this lead up, we really didn't need the lead up. While this is going on, Tandy Newton's character, Naya Nordoff Falls, she's not even in the compound. They released her in downtown Sydney. And they're like, you know what? We're going to create a pandemic uh, right now because we released Patient Zero in downtown Sydney and she's going to infect everyone. Then Naya promptly just walks away from everyone. And to where when we finally see her, she's like alone about to jump off a cliff. So again, another stupid fucking plan from the bad guys. <laughs> Think it through, y'all. Especially for what could have been a globe-trotting movie, how insane would it have been for Sean to be like, I've released Naya somewhere in the world. You have to find her. No, she's three blocks away. This movie stinks. Yeah, maybe she took off her hood and next thing you know, she was like, oh, I'm in the middle of a basketball game. <laughs> like a populated area that would be tough for her to get out of. But she just was like, where is there nobody? I'll go that way. But David, at some point, they got to get out of this compound because we got to take the chase outside. And uh, some bad guys are on uh, car vehicles and uh, Ethan Hunt, he's on a motorcycle. Rum, 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 rum. And David, there's a, uh, a part here where Ethan Hunt on a bike, like does a like a jump. And not really jump, like a ramp. 
And the motorcycle, the physics of it, you know, it should ramp here and land over there, but it does not land where it's supposed to. In fact, the motorcycle floats for a little bit. And I thought that it was so obvious and funny that I marked out again, David. <laughs> oh, it got no. me with another dumb mark out. But when it happened again, I was like, oh, awesome. Like, I just, I was the mood I was in. When something actiony and super dumb happens, I'm on board, you know? Sure, I'd love to eat a steak that uh, Bobby Flay, uh, you know, uh, made or whatever. But sometimes I also like to eat a meal made by Long John Silvers, right? Do you think he likes making filets because his name is Bobby Filet? I think so. Also, one of the bad dudes who's like in a lot of action movies, I think was the host of Iron Chef America? Yeah, Mark DeCascos. He was in John Wick 3. He was the guy who really loved fighting John Wick. Yeah, what's crazy is like, uh, I was like, man, this guy seems familiar. And I was like, ah, he's probably not the same guy that hosts Iron <laughs> Chef. That's an insane thing. But yeah, uh, is he my new favorite human? Uh, maybe. We'll, we'll find out. He's probably, <laughs> hope he doesn't have a sorted past. You know, I'm right there with you on the markout moment, but this is going to be one step forward, one step back. Uh, because I actually, I had a, a JFC moment in this movie, but it's not for any sort of gross or extreme reasons. It's the moment when Ethan leaves the compound and before he gets on the motorcycle, he throws on some shades. Why does he throw on some shades? Because it's easier to hide a stunt person if they're not, if they wear shades and don't look like Tom Cruise. This movie doesn't care. This movie doesn't care that I know why they're doing it. It revels in it. I was shaking my head like, Jesus fucking Christ, you guys. Yeah, but we wrap up that action set piece that I'll call Mission Infiltration, and now we're on a new action set piece. It's a vehicle chase called Mission Acceleration. And David, there's some cool shots in this this sequence. There's some very cool shots in this sequence. I'm going to go ahead and have another half markout moment uh, with some of the explosion work that they do. How do you have a half markout moment? Well, it's going to be an aggregate because the first time I watched this movie, I had I did not mark out. I was ready to be done with this movie, but the second time I watched it, I had a greater appreciation for it. This is there's a moment in particular where Luther is in the helicopter, he gets shot at, and he's like, "Oh, I'm mad now." So he shoots, I, I believe, a rocket launcher at one of the cars, and there's a stunt person hanging out of the side of the car, firing his gun. The car blows up. The stunt person's still hanging out of the car. So I'm going to go ahead and say half mark out moment. I didn't mark out because the movie got me there. I marked out just because I had an appreciation for the stunt work. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. But I do want to talk about something else here in this where there's explosions on the bridge and then you see Ethan on his motorcycle in his sunglasses driving through the fire, which it turns out was actually Tom Cruise. He didn't use any sort of gel or anything like that. He drove through that fire. I'm watching it and I recognize this is classic John Woo. This is a shot we saw in Hard Target. We'll, I'm sure we saw it in Broken Arrow. We'll see it again in other movies. But this is the third John Woo movie that we're doing for The Mountain. And this is not including Broken Arrow, not including Face Off, not including his other Hong Kong movies. By the time we get to 2000 and by the time we get to Mission Impossible 2, is something like this hack? Is that why I'm not reacting to it? Because we've seen so much of John Woo and his style in the 90s that by the time we get here, it just falls flat? You know what? Maybe, David, because he definitely has gone back to that well. But, you know, I got to tell you, David, that my motto has always been when it's right, it's right. Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night when everything's a little clear in the light of day? That's right, David. I'm talking about afternoon sex, uh, which is very <laughs> relatable to this movie. But honestly, I don't mind it because I feel like in these John Woo movies, I'm waiting for certain things. Like I'm waiting to see a dove. I'm waiting to see somebody leap with, you know, and shoot as they jump. I'm waiting to see somebody like, you know, get into like a, 
a back-to-back standoff with guns. I did not know I should be waiting for a motorcycle over fire, but whenever we get to face-off and we watch that again, you're damn right if there's not a motorcycle <laughs> driving through fire, I'm probably going to have a, a sad ad moment, a psalm. But David, there's another moment coming up here where Tom Cruise on his on his bike, he basically does like a hard break and the bike spins and he extends his arm and it's a very cool looking shot, just like a visually kind of neat thing where his like arm whips around and he does the shot. Now, David... I should have marked out at this cool motorcycle spin shot. But if you want me to mark out at a cool motorcycle spin shot, don't show me that motorcycle floating uh, a minute and a half earlier. Because when the motorcycle broke the laws of physics, now the fact that you just have a dude like firing a gun cool, it's not, you know, we're at this point, we're not heightening anymore, right? At this point, the motorcycle should probably transform into a robot if you want me to mark out. Yes, this movie does itself a disservice. You're absolutely right. Because especially... This is Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise at this point in his career and and from this point forward wants you to know that he's doing these stunts. But the way the scenes and the way the shots with the motorcycle were cut, it almost assured me that it was shot for a motion picture, that it that it could not have been Tom Cruise. They're just trying to trick you. And, and stuff like that is is also going to take me out of this movie. Now, I watched this movie with my feral wife, who I think she had either not seen it or just completely erased it from her brain. And she was like, what do you remember about this movie? And I was like, I was like, well, I remember a couple things about it. I remember the MTV Movie Awards skit where Ben Stiller pretended to be Tom Cruise's stuntman, which is pretty funny. <laughs> but I also was like, I think there's a movie where Tom Cruise gets off the motorcycle and then as if he's wearing rollerblades, just kind of like glides along next to it. I remember watching it and thinking, that doesn't make a lick of sense. And I, then I started to be like, wait, is that, am I remembering that accurately? Probably not, because again, that wouldn't make any sense. But David, what happens in this movie? He ghost rides that motorcycle. He jumps on the side of it and hides behind it while he's in a shootout with Sean. I had the same thought you did. And this, you know, this kind of leads me back to the question I posed a moment ago about this stuff playing as though it's hack or it's contrived. Because I could have sworn we saw this in Hard Target, but now that I can't outright recall it it's all blurring together yeah so he, i guess the idea is that the motorcycle's going so fast he, he just he, he wants it i guess the fact that it, the motorcycle's driving over like pebbles the the bike is pulling him along to where he can stand as if he's ice again it doesn't make why am i doing this david it doesn't make any sense <laughs> it was not dumb enough to get me to mark out but it was dumb enough to where i was like don't don't do this guys I, i'm right there with you For all of the things that I'm not marking out on and for all the things that I'm kind of folding my arms and pouting about, through this motorcycle chase between Ethan Hunt and Sean Ambrose, which at a certain point just turns into a motorcycle stunt spectacular. Like, I think Sean at one point jumps a ramp over Ethan and they cross paths. There's a moment where Ethan sort of skids out of control on this field that he's on. And he almost gets taken out by the hood of a rusted car. That was very exciting to me because it was unexpected. And I almost wanted more of that. I wanted almost an obstacle course that they had to maneuver through in addition to fighting each other. A little touches like that, Mac, make this movie better, I think. Just a couple extra little things. Like maybe he rides his bike. I don't want to get into punch-ups, but maybe, you know, he stops his motorcycle just short of ruining uh, a, like a teddy bear picnic or something like that. But David, they, they get off these bikes in a very dramatic way. Holy Christ. So I, one of them has a leak in their gas tank. I believe it's Sean. Does not matter. They're, the two bikes are hurtling towards each other. And right before they smash into each other, Sean and Ethan both jump off their bikes and collide in midair. 
and collapse into a fistfight that takes them down some sandbar onto the shore. Their body should have been shattered to dust, Mac. What what does this movie want from me? Yeah, I don't know. I this this scene, David. I think it's something we've referenced before, but the scene in The Other Guys where Samuel L. Jackson and The Rock just jump off a building to their deaths. It's like these guys are like, "Yeah, we're just this is how we fight," and it's like, "No, this is how you again you this is how you you break every bone in your body." Is, is what this is. <laughs> we're off the bikes, and now this fight is now hand to hand. David, the fight between Sean Ambrose, the hand-to-hand fight here between Ambrose and Hunt, did it remind you of any kind of uh, style of fighting? Oh, gosh. Short answer, no. Long answer, I did find this fight interesting because Ethan pulls out a knife. Ethan opts to not use the knife and go bare knuckles with this. John Woo decides to cross-cut this fist fight with shots of waves crashing as though the fight is as brutal and and natural as, as a wave crashing. So I just remember appreciating this moment because it decided to just get down and dirty. There was not going to be anything glamorous about this fight. It was just going to be two guys going bare knuckle with it. But I don't quite know how to answer your question, though. I do apologize. Well, I was basically setting myself up for an answer, so you're off the hook. But it reminded me of like pro wrestling, the way that these guys were kind of like, I think at some point, did he, did he give them a rock bottom or a Stone Cold Stunner? There was like a lot of flips like landing on people. And I did like it when the fight went hand-to-hand. But I have to say, I, this fight might have hit harder before Mission Impossible 3 through 6 or 8 or whatever. And what I mean by that is, I think this is the first Tom Cruise as pure action hero movie, right? Let me go to his IMDb real quick. Beep, boop, 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 boop. He's definitely been in movies that have action, but I wouldn't necessarily call him like an action hero, right? Not like, a physical presence. Yeah. And so seeing Tom Cruise like do these moves, I don't think it was quite like watching uh, Colin Firth suddenly be like, oh, damn, he's gone Billy Badass in that Kingsman movie, <laughs> which I never saw. But it, it it had to have been impressive when you first saw, like, oh, shit, Tom Cruise has got some fucking fighting skills. Watching this movie now just feels like this is a little weird. But yes, Sean Ambrose, who had already written his permission slip to get killed, he didn't even need one because he's the bad guy in this movie. He pulls out a knife, and Ethan grabs the knife, and he's holding it towards Ambrose, and Ambrose goes, go ahead, use it, Hunt. It's a lot better to die than the way that bitch is going to die, which is like, wow. Uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> You're like, yeah, kill me. I'll give you extra motivation. Kill me, kill me, kill me. Of course, like, you know, Ethan's like, I'm not going to use the knife, which if you're telling me that like Ambrose knew that, shut shut the fuck up. But like you said, here we here we go with a, with a fist fight to end this thing. They do an okay job. I think that's really what it is. It just feels quaint in this moment. I, I don't think I don't think we're expecting to see Tom Cruise being physical. So when we see someone fighting, we don't really care who it is. We just assume it's a stunt guy. But there is some really interesting audio. There's some really interesting screaming going on in this fight. In fact, I'm just going to play a little taste of it real quick. I don't think the movie meant for it to be pointed out, but I, I caught it and I really enjoyed the little screams that they're giving each other through this fight. Yeah, I liked it too. That's uh, It definitely adds a nice uh, audio dumbness to uh, <laughs> some visual dumb. Well, I don't know if dumb is the right word, but you know, whatever you want to say. It was enjoyable. But David, Ethan is giving Ambrose the fucking beat down. And the copter is landed. I guess they found uh, they're going to like take, you know, Ethan off to go get Naya. But it's like Luther runs toward Luther Stickle. As he runs towards Ethan, he like pulls up and he's like looking over like, oh, no, something behind us. Ethan turns around. Ambrose has got a gun and it's aimed right at Ethan. And Ambrose says, Hunt, you should have killed me. But David Hunt looks down on the ground. Ethan Hunt, that is. 
and he sees there's a gun in the sand that Ambrose doesn't see. But he doesn't have time to bend over and pick up the gun. He'll get shot. What does he do here? Probably dies, right? <laughs> no, the, the exact opposite. He lives. He puts his foot underneath the gun, kicks the gun up to himself so he catches it in midair, then turns around and shoots Sean dead. Mac, was this gun always there? I do not remember this gun being there. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> the fact that <laughs> he kicked the gun in the air and then John Woo did a little patented slow-mo. The fact that you saw this coming, like that he's like, I'm going to kick this gun in the air. Watch this, bitches. And then he did, well, look at that gun, just right at the perfect height with this kick. <laughs> it, it just, ah, I couldn't resist. I marked out again, David. Okay. It's just okay. so cheesy at this point. At this point, I'm just looking for like, let's just get some run up the score with some hell yeah moments, even though they don't necessarily make sense. Because this is kind of what I want out of a John Woo movie. Mission Impossible 2 is not what I want out of a Mission Impossible movie, but uh, there's definitely some some John Woo flair here that uh, I'm a mark mm-hmm. for. Yeah, you know, this movie rallies hard. It is a John Woo action movie in the second half. Uh, it's satisfying. It, it's just uh, I'm very exhausted from that first half. Yeah, as you should be. It was, it was a long time to get to the good stuff. But Mac, we're done with all that, so let's do an epilogue. Ethan gives the antidote to Nia and saves her while also getting her criminal record expunged. And with Chimera destroyed, Ethan fails in his mission of bringing back a live sample. But oh well, after all of this, Ethan could really use a vacation. Yeah, the good guys win, David. We did it. Yeah, and Ethan is free to spend the rest of his life with Naya, or at least the interval between the second and third movie. Here's the thing, Mac. I know this, or I get the sense that this movie does want to be a modern version of James Bond, a modern version of a, of a spy type movie, and also wants to play on the Bond girl trope where each movie has a love interest and, you know, and you follow that relationship and then you move on to the next one. By the time we get to here, by the time we get to 2000 and Mission Impossible 2, this whole trope kind of sucks. We know there's going to be a Mission Impossible 3. We know Ethan Hunt is going to have further adventures. So don't have us get involved with this relationship where we're not going to, we're going to be told not to care by the time the next movie comes along. It just, it feels like a waste. Maybe they thought that we would care. Maybe they didn't anticipate that Tandy Newton and Tom Cruise uh, didn't like each other. Uh, maybe they thought, because in Mission Impossible 3, we meet Ethan Hunt's wife, I believe his wife. She stays his wife, or at least, you know, some sort of relationship. And that sort of plotline finally gets settled in, uh, I believe it's uh, Fallout, where it's like, we've moved on. But I mean, it's that storyline exists in those movies, but you're right. In terms of this movie, it's one and done, which is if you're looking at uh, the Mission Impossible series as like a saga, which please don't, <laughs> this movie is unnecessary. Like maybe the first movie sets up the fact that he was an agent, uh, the IMF infrastructure betrayed him. And so now he's like, you know, in a different, his team is dead. He's kind of flying solo. Like you could have skipped from Mission Impossible 1 to Mission Impossible 3 and you would not be missing anything. Uh, and I, maybe that's why this movie kind of feels the way it does is it just feels it, it feels like the most different of all the Mission Impossible movies, which is why I think which helps the movie. But then also there's a lot of head scratchers in this thing. Well, you know, it's going back to this movie coming at a time where it doesn't know what it wants to be, because by the time you do get to three I think J.J. Abrams starts to take it in more of, it turns it into more of a saga. Whereas these first two, at least, Mission Impossible movies, I know they were going off the template of kind of the original series, of a of an adventure of the week, where it's a self-contained story. 
And then they move on to the next one, a different Swan Beck, a different love interest, that sort of thing. So to see it butted up against three through seven at this point, I guess, and to see how those look in comparison to two, it stands out. It definitely stands out. And it's so of its time, you know, the the new metalness, the, the you know, just ham-fisted badassery. It's so somehow it's so much fun because of it. I don't know. This movie is, it's definitely, it's an outlier in the Mission Impossible series for sure. But I, I, I was like bracing myself to be like, oh, is this movie going to like annoy me? And I, the fact that I had a lot of fun watching it, I was not expecting. But yeah, once you get, put all that, the terrible choices they made about Tanya Noon's character, uh, once you can kind of, um, you know, process that, uh, then the, the action points this movie are, are, are a lot of fun. But we're going to be left with Ethan and Naya. They're going to get lost together. They're going to go on vacation. They're not going to leave Australia, though. They're still going to stay in Sydney, where they can very easily be found by another IMF agent and get taken on another adventure. And that, David, if you choose to accept it, is the end of Mission Impossible 2. All right, David, how many moms did you have? How many mark-out moments did you have watching MI2? I apologize for this, but cumulatively, I'm going to say I had 1.0. I had half and I had half. So I'm going to go with one mark-out moment. How about you, Mac? Two wow ones and two dumb ones for a total of four. David, is this someone's favorite movie? Short answer, no. Long answer, every series has its fans of individual movies. I'm sure someone uh, likes this one over all the others. So sure, I'll bet this is someone's favorite movie. It shouldn't be. It might be someone's favorite Mission Impossible movie, but also it shouldn't be. Okay, David, it's time for some punch-ups. David, we're the Ultimate Script Doctors. Everyone knows that. How would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? First punch up, release the extended cut. Now, I'm not talking about the original three and a half hour one that John Woo turned in. So apparently before the release of this movie in 2000, there was a VHS bootleg of about a two and a half hour cut that was floating around that had more action, not so much exposition, but heavier on the action. I want that. I'll meet you in the middle. I don't want the three and a half hour. That's That seems like way, way too much. But just give me some more action. Maybe pace it out a little bit better throughout the movie. I could really go for that. Like we said, the second half of this movie, pretty stinking fun. But it just, it dug a deficit for me that was tough to get out. My second punch up, I was really struck by the moment where Ethan is standing outside the house in the outback while uh, Naya and, and Sean are making love. And I was so tickled by that moment. I was like, what if that's the whole movie? What if everyone hooks up? What if everyone gets their rocks off except for Ethan? He's just holding the mission together. He, there's no time for love, Dr. Jones, because he's too busy. But everyone around him is just uh, just sucking and fucking. I think that'd be very satisfying. Yeah, you know I'm on board with that. <laughs> I always love a little S and F, David. And, you know, maybe also a little a little C. Sucking, fucking, and cucking, David. All right. Well, my third uh, unrelated punch-up. You know, I'm not going to have a lot of punch-ups. This movie is what it is. It, it was it was fun. It was silly. It was dumb. But let's say there's an end credit sequence at the end of this movie. Sean, we, for all intents and purposes, he's dead. He got shot on the beach. But what if he wakes up unharmed? What if we come to find out he's got healing powers, Mac? That's the movie. I hate it. I hate that idea. I hate it. <laughs> My big punch up is we gotta do we gotta fix this thing with Tanny Newton's character, Naya Nordoff Hall. The way in Men in Black they recruited Will Smith because they're like, he chased down an alien on his own. Or in Mission Impossible One, well, this is all black characters. The way they they mentioned the Luther Stickle, like uh Ving Rames' character, like he hacked into I forget some secret government database. He's like, I had nothing to do with that exceptional piece of work. 
If she's a master thief, let's see it in action. Like, have her pull off some impossible heist, and that's why she's there, to use her skills. Because, I don't know, I mean, Tandy Newton, the parts where, you know, she was having to navigate this stuff, even though I was anxious about it, I enjoyed it because I think Tandy Newton's great. So uh, I wanted more Tandy Newton and more of her not having this weird, like, uh, the not having the burden of of barely consensual sex hanging over her, which was uncomfortable. My other uh, punch up is uh, the helicopter pilot Billy, pretty forgettable. And when you look at these Mission Impossible teams, like who are the people that you know we like? Oh, it's like we like Rebecca Ferguson's character in the other movies. We like uh, Benji played by Simon Pegg. I think the IMF needs a dog, David. I think they needed uh, Mission Impossible pup. I think he shows up in this movie. Like, you know, a couple times, like he'll bite someone and, and Tom Cruise is like, what is this, this dog? He, he just saved my bacon by biting this guy. And then later on, at the end of the movie, when he's like, you know, you got a new mission if you choose to accept it. It, it looks like a, a new pair of sunglasses. And they're like, uh-uh, not for you. And they point down. And the dog is the new, uh, like, head of the IMF. He's the one who gets the mission. That's pretty impossible that a dog can understand English. <laughs> I'm on board with that. It's Ethan Runt. I'm on board with that, too. Oh, there it is. Hi, right, David. Please join me in the uh, Punch Mountain video store here. Hi, right, David. We have three copies of Mission Impossible 2. Now, David, as you know, this is an all-action movie video store. So what shelves would you put this movie in? What subsections of action should these copies be placed under? Okay, the three seem like automatics. One is going to go on the John Woo shelf. This will be the third movie of his that we do. So, yeah, he's he's got his shelf locked in. Uh, this will be our second Tom Cruise movie. Let's go ahead and put this on the Tom Cruise shelf. This will be the second of seven Mission Impossibles, right? Uh, so, of course, we're going to have a Mission Impossible series. In the event that we do happen upon a fourth copy... David, if you choose to accept it, here's a fourth copy of this movie. I love it. Yes. Okay, this is going in a shelf that I'm just going to, for now, title what? Maybe we also title it Noted to Death Action or Studio Notes Action, but just something that... From the time the script was written to the time the movie gets released, something went off the rails and it shows in the final product. I think that's what this movie suffers from interference. This movie suffers from cuts. This movie suffers from a, a lack of, of really solid through line. And I, I think we should have a shelf that celebrates those movies that kind of go off the path. Yeah, that's interesting. It almost deserves like a section of like franchise movies that like that stick out of the franchise. Which the only examples I can think of are like non-action movies, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, 2, or the first Casino Royale that was like a comedy, that James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah, just kind of like, what the fuck is that? This is a weird, you know, the Ugly Duckling, I guess, of the, uh, the Mission Impossible series. But that Ugly Duckling turned into a swan, David, who also loves shooting people. So that's an appropriate um, analogy. Good, good job, Mac. Great job. All right, David. Now we need to determine the position of Mission Impossible 2 on Punch Mountain itself, the definitive ranking of action movies. Some might say, this is our impossible mission, David, but I wouldn't. Now, David, currently at the summit of the mountain, the top six, we have Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, Jurassic Park, Hard Boiled, and Number 6, Speed. And then all the way at the bottom of the mountain, when Tom Cruise was climbing that mountain in the uh, beginning of uh, Mission Impossible, he probably kicked over a Gatorade bottle. And the Gatorade bottle traveled all the way where it donked off the head of our number 34 movie, Chappie. All right, David, before the mountain... Uh, gives unto us its judgment, where would you rank this movie? I would not put it very high. I, I think I, I'm done being critical of this movie. It, it was it was fun. It didn't work, but I think that's just because of what it ended up being. I, you know, like I said, I you know this movie 
was originally supposed to be considerably longer. This movie was originally supposed to be considerably more robust. The fact that it wasn't makes it hard for me to reward a movie that ends up being half-baked as opposed to these movies that uh, these other movies on the list that presented themselves fully formed. So I don't know. It's toward the bottom, but I'm not going to be too cruel about it. How about you? Yeah, it does have some fun action sequences, and I had fun watching it, and I did enjoy it. However, you cannot escape. It just feels less than, right? Like, it, it feels like, okay, this maybe is, is probably the worst Mission Possible movie, maybe. It's uh, out of the three John Woo movies we've watched so far, it definitely feels like third place there. And, you know, we've also seen Tom Cruise, like, do better work. So, yeah, even though it has some fun moments, I probably would not rank it uh, too high. Oh, David, look out. There's falling rocks and possibly also Tom Cruise. Uh, the rocks are falling off the face of the mountain. All the golden letters are appearing. It looks like it is now number 25, which means it's 23, yes, madam, 24, cliffhanger, 25, Mission Impossible 2, 26, Punisher Warzone, 27, The Driver, et cetera. A fun movie uh, with some flaws, but still some fun moments. I'm, I'm satisfied with that position. I am satisfied with the company it keeps. It, it feels right at home, adjacent to Punisher Warzone. Oh, David, you hear that noise? Oh, no, my masks. <laughs> what is that? What do you think that noise is? Oh, they all stuck together. So that ripping noise that you kind of have to, when you pull them apart, I, I left them in the trunk of my car. It's summer. David, that's a horn. My goodness. Uh, get your ears checked. We'll tell you what, I'm going to bring that music down for a second because this is, this is kind of weird. Um... Now, I'm going to change it up here a little bit. Normally, during this part of the show, it's our call to action, right? This is where we plug uh, usually a nonprofit organization that's doing, the, our little tagline is, is taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This is where we plug real-world organizations, usually doing like big things, right? Like, you know, fighting for uh, trans youth or working to, you know, bring equity to our criminal justice system. But for this episode, what I want to do is... Our nonprofit is going to be the Lil Paws Maltese Rescue and other Petite Paws. That is the name of this Maltese Rescue thing. And the reason why I'm picking a very specific dog rescue nonprofit, David, is because Maltese is the favorite dog of my mom, and my mom has passed away. When this comes out, uh, she's probably been gone for about a month, and there's been some gaps in the release schedule of that, and you can draw a straight line from this uh, turbulence in my life to... Uh, to, you know, this kind of wonky re release schedule. And it does feel weird to stop everything in the middle of an action movie podcast and, and tell people about this. I'm doing it here for two reasons. Uh, one is because that's life now. Social media is now just an extension of, you know, our, our everyday lives. And so the fact that I'm talking about this on an action movie podcast, it's like, man, that's just what's happening with me, right? You know, is this a podcast where I pretend to not have a life outside of it? I don't know. It may still feel weird, but it, it's an easy way for me to get it out. Because that's the other thing, David, is I haven't necessarily told a lot of people about it. Uh, and that's because uh, I haven't really processed it in a way where I feel comfortable talking about it. Because I kind of, to be honest with you and the listeners, I kind of, my relationship with my mom is a little complicated. You know, and I, I don't want to unpack that right now. It, it does feel weird to live in a world where my mom is no longer in it. But she did have Maltese dogs for, you know, most of her life and pretty much all of mine. So yes, in my mom's honor... I'll be making a donation to Lil Paws Maltese Rescue and other Petite Paws. They don't just do Maltese. They do other dogs as well. And tell you a little bit more about them. They exist to rescue, rehabilitate, and carefully rehome neglected and homeless Maltese and other small dogs. They are a 501c3 nonprofit rescue group run entirely by a small group of dedicated volunteers 
are passionate about the welfare of these dogs. It is based here in Austin. After this episode, I'll be giving a small donation to Lil Paws. And for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, uh, we'll add $1 to that donation. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on air. So for more information about Lil Paws or to donate directly to them, you can go to www.lilpaws- Lil is L-I-L. This, this, Dave, this is the confusing URL I've always wanted. L-I-L-Paws-MalteseRescue.org is their web address. So there you go. All right, folks, that'll do it for another episode of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up next week from 1978. And directed by Yen Wu Ping, it's Jackie Chan in Drunken Master. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.